so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? What's going on in the world today? Come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. first impulse. If your answer is running to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon 
for my Patriot food. All right, and we're back. You're here listening to Seven Cents Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, and half a dozen other places. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chickeny, along with my oh-so-debonair and erudite co-host, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Hey, How's everything today so far? So far, um, my program started to update just as soon as I opened it, but fortunately I got here in time, so it didn't foul up too badly at the opening of the show. We did lose one of our guests. We were supposed to have Craig Huey with us uh, this week, uh, and unfortunately he had to board a plane last minute. So he's off in the wild blue yonder getting frisked by the TSA and making sure he's wearing his Oh, so politically correct face mask on the plane. <laughs> so, <laughs> hopefully, when we, we come back on, yeah, when we come back on the air, um, he will be with us. I hope, uh, fingers crossed. Um, but a little heads up: um, next week, uh, we will not be live. Uh, my husband is going to be having some major surgery, and I will be pacing the halls of the hospital. And yes, the hospital does allow me to go in. Um, as long as I have my face shield on, I'm fine. And they do the temperature test and they ask me all the COVID questions, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, no, I'm not. not, not, not you know, okay, take the temperature, I'm in. Uh, so I will be facing <laughs> next week. Um, unfortunately, my husband took a bunch of bad falls and rebroke his leg. So they're going to have to go in and take part of the bone out and put a prosthetic in its place. And, Oh, God, it's a mess. I've got dueling walkers going up and down the hallways between him and my mom. Uh, so uh, I will be a bundle of nerves. So say a prayer for me next week, please. We're going to need it. Do. Anyway, uh, we got ourselves a, a fantastic lineup. We've got the dueling Moors. <laughs> I don't mean Muslims. <laughs> we got Dr. Patrick Moore, who's the author of the book Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. Uh, he will be our first guest, followed by Lieutenant Colonel Ray Moore, Army Reserve and veteran of the Gulf War, as well as a Bronze Star Medal uh, recipient and graduate of the Citadel here in Charleston, South Carolina. He's the chairman of Public School Exit. And then that's going to be followed by Dr. Bruce L. Hartman, who should have been with us last week, but <laughs> Dr. Bruce is kind of <laughs> a little funny. <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah. uh, followed uh, we're going to close up with uh, our guest from the Heritage Foundation. He's a columnist for the Heritage Foundation uh, magazine called The Daily Signal, Doug Blair. So we got ourselves a rock and roll lineup, lots to talk about, a lot that's going on out there. <sighs> Take a breath, Annie. Take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> it all fall into place. Oh, yeah, yeah. want to welcome everyone that's listening in uh, here on uh, Blog Talk Radio, as well as those that are listening in on Facebook. If I remember to bring up the Facebook page, and somewhere along the way, well, I'll have to play with that uh, when we do the dedication, but we're, I do know we're up on live on LinkedIn and Facebook, and I think we should be up on YouTube. I hope. I don't know. Anyway, deep breath, Curtis. Deep breath. Mm-hmm. I don't well, know, you know where to start today. There's 
so much insanity out there. I don't I don't even know where to start. <laughs> the and latest it, impeachment attempts of what? It is insanity out there, and a lot of people feel hopeless and whatnot. But the way I look at it, we we have something to fight for, and that's you know our our freedom, you know, to continue the liberties that we have, and we can you know fo- focus on the midterms coming up in two years. Um, that's one way to stop the agenda of the left. But I would say that when we, you know, get candidates that we vet them very well and make sure they share, you know, our our conservative views and and um, you know they are steeped, you know, the principles this this country was um, founded on. So that's my message for people who are feeling kind of down and out because we got cheated, you know, but we can stop this. We put the right people in Congress in two years. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I got to say, I had a friend of mine send me a email last night. um, and She thought she would get a one or two line response. And (laughs) I I sent her back a a huge, huge (laughs) reply. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Someone sent her one of these chain mail emails, and um, it was about uh, the numbers for COVID, you know, how many uh, deaths are being reported, how the death rate in the United States has risen, blah, 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 blah. And someone sent her one saying, well, this is the reality. Uh, We're between 20, I think it was 2016 and now, the difference in the numbers of deaths in the United States overall is only 56,000. And they're telling us something like over 400,000 people have died from COVID. But if you look at the actual death statistics, it's only a difference between 2016 and 2020 of only 56,000. And so I went into explaining um, how the numbers are being fudged. And these are all things we're going to get into later on. And it's a shame I didn't print out my response because, you know, maybe when the dedication music is playing, I'll tr- see if I can try to print that out because it's on the other computer that's not open. Dummy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I'll see if I can get that printed out and we'll talk about it. Uh, and like I said, there's so much more to talk about. Things that are going on that the lies were being told. And I think the American public is starting to wake up. Even the left is getting voter regret. Go ahead. Let me add this. Um, I looked up um, the causes, the major causes of death in 2020, and they listed the top 10 um, um, reasons people died in the United States last year. And COVID wasn't even in the top 10. The number one still remains heart disease. Even pneumonia and, and, and other respiratory illnesses only ranked number eight. Nowhere was COVID. So, you know, things oh, were I, supposed to be so devastating a disease, you think it would be number one. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know in, in, inoculate me against cancer. Inoculate me against... There are vaccines for pneumonia. And you would think... If pneumonia is a higher cause of death than COVID, don't you think they would be pushing people to wear masks if you have pneumonia so you don't spread it and you get vaccinated against pneumonia so you don't get it? I mean, suicide is a higher death rate 
than COVID. And yet and you know, this lockdown that was in the top ten too. But suicide, suicide was in the top ten. Yeah, but people, there's an increasing number in suicides because people in these lockdowns are going nuts. And they're getting depressed, and they feel hopeless. And people with that have PTSD or traumatic brain disease or drug abuse or alcohol abuse or domestic violence abuse, those numbers are higher because of these quarantines and lockdowns and pandemic terrifying news reports and oh gosh you know you gotta say you're safe distance and you can't go out you gotta it's all the stupidity you can't even go to church you can't go to the movies you can't do this you can't do that you lose your job stores are closing Keep the kids out of school People. for a year some states so how do you go to work and leave your kids home alone you know it, it is is pure insanity and i think America is starting to wake up. But these are all things we're going to talk about in a little bit. I'm looking at the clock. We've got to do our dedication. Let's okay. not forget okay. that. Uh, okay, I'm glad I have your permission. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be one of those days today, guys. Oh, man. And one of the other things we're going to be talking about is in the next uh, two months or so, we're going to kick up uh, our show uh whole big notch. We're taking it to a brand new level. Uh, I've got someone, believe it or not, out of Hollywood uh, working with me to take us up to the next level. And what we're going to come out with is going to rock your socks off. But we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Everyone that listens to the show knows that we dedicate each and every show to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Sergeant Bruce Allen Watson of the Harris County Sheriff's Office in Texas. His end of watch was Saturday, January 2nd of this year. And this comes from several different uh, sources um, out of KTRK, um, out of MSN.com, out of Legacy.com, and out of Fox 2. Uh, actually, Fox 26 out of Houston, Texas. And it starts off out of Perlin, Texas. A sergeant with the Harris County Sheriff's Office has died after he was involved in an accident while driving his patrol motorcycle in Perlin. Sergeant Bruce Watson, 51, was fatally injured on Saturday, January 2nd, 2021, in what Sheriff Ed Gonzalez says was a tragic accident. The crash happened near the intersection of Shadow Creek Parkway and Kingsley Drive. Sheriff Ed Gonzalez said Sergeant Watson had completed a funeral motorcycle escort and was on his way home when he was involved in the crash. He was taken by life flight to the hospital where he passed away. Sergeant Ed Gonzalez remembers the life of the 20-year Harris County Sheriff's Office veteran, Sergeant Bruce Watson. Sergeant Watson had been with the Sheriff's Office for 20 years and was headed home after serving as an escort at a funeral on that Saturday. Gonzalez said Watson was recently working in the Watch Command Center for the department. The center was lit up in blue in his honor that Saturday evening. 
he leaves behind his wife, who also works for the Houston Police Department, three children, a new grandchild, as well as his mother. Gonzalez said he took time on Saturday to thank Watson's mother for raising a respectable young man. I thanked his mother for raising such a God-fearing man, Gonzalez said. He went on to ask the community to keep the family in their thoughts and prayers. Sergeant Watson, our sheriff's Our entire sheriff's office family is grieving for the sudden loss of our longtime brother, Sheriff Gonzalez said. Sergeant Watson served his community with honor and distinction, and we ask for everyone to lift his family in prayer during this difficult time. Sergeant Watson was assigned to the patrol. I'm sorry, to the patrol support services bureau and worked the night shift at the emergency dispatch center. He joined the sheriff's office in March of 2000 and previously served as a detention sergeant in the Harris County Jail, a patrol field training officer, and an instructor at the training academy. Bruce Watson was a godly man, devoted husband, father, and son. Bruce graduated the Pontiac Northern High School in 1989, where he was on the football, wrestling, and track teams. Bruce was also a member of the Junior Kappa League. He joined the Army in 1990 and served in Desert Storm as a specialist. In 1992, he was awarded the key to the city of Pontiac, Michigan. Bruce was known for his big heart, infectious smile, and willingness to teach others. Bruce joined the sheriff's office in March of 2000 and was called back to active duty where he was promoted to sergeant and trained as a military police officer. Upon separation from the Army, Bruce returned to the Harris County Sheriff's Office where he was a patrol field training officer and an instructor at the training academy. Bruce was promoted to sergeant and served as a detention sergeant in the Harris County Jail. He was currently assigned to the Patrol Support Service Bureau, where he worked the night shift at the Emergency Dispatch Center. Veteran Sergeant Watson was honored as a dear friend of many, a family man, a reliable 20-year employee of the Harris County Sheriff's Office. Deputies, police, family, and friends raised a candle in silent tribute to Watson at the vigil held outside the Sheriff County, the Harris County Sheriff's Office, the emergency dispatch center where he worked. He was so proud when he became a field training officer, said Assistant Chief Michael Lee of the Sheriff's Office. He was even more proud when he went to the academy and got the red shirt. So proud when he became a sergeant. But I think the most proud I ever saw him was when he said, look at my grandbaby. Look at my grandbaby. Look at Pawpaw's baby. He came in with his cell phone. You couldn't take the smile off his face. The community gave a final farewell to the 20-year veteran of the Harris County Sheriff's Office. The funeral for Sergeant Bruce Watson was held at the Grace Community Church in Southeast Houston. Watson, who was also a 20-year U.S. Army veteran, 
meant different things to different people. Those who knew him often described him as a shining light in the world who worked to make it a better place for everyone. Watson dedicated his life to serving others, remembered by his friends and family as someone who was deeply compassionate and a great man of faith. In his 20 years with the sheriff's office, Watson wore many hats. One of the things about Watson that struck Harris County Sheriff Ed Gonzalez the most was the immense pride Watson had for helping and set the foundation for success for so many of his colleagues. Sergeant Watson consistently invested in the next generation of deputies, mentoring and guiding them to become our agency's future leaders, he said. A letter written by Watson's three children was shared by a colleague during the service. It started with the words, Daddy, I love you. The funeral service was followed by a ceremony of honors outside of the church, including a U.S. and Texas flag folding and presentation to the family, a 21-gun salute, and the ceremonial playing of caps. Watson received the burial honors from the U.S. Army at Houston National Cemetery. Today's show is dedicated to Sergeant Watson. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women who serve in our military and as first responders. We dedicate this show to all of them that have served from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. We dedicate with them this song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America, because if anyone exemplified all that we stand for as Americans and as our founding fathers wished us to be was Sergeant Bruce Allen Watson and all those who went before him and stand behind him. God bless each and every one. Don't you 
the virtues I stand for, my respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power, but their vicious I've turned my mic back on. All right, we're back. You're here listening to Southern Sense live on, on Talk Radio. God, I don't even know where the heck I am right now at this moment, Curtis. But we're back. We're live here. You're listening to Southern Sense. I'm your hostess with the most sister radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host going, what the is going on here? <laughs> oh, man. It looks like we've got our, our next victim. The, the, the teeth and straight next victim up in the batter's box. Want to welcome back onto the show, Dr. Patrick Moore, author of the book called "Fake: Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom." You will perish in flames. Oh, heaven forbid! Good afternoon, Patrick, and welcome back. Hi, Annie. You're way too happy today. <laughs> I mean, the last several shows I've had, I've had technical difficulties up the wazoo. And every time I open up the programs to do the broadcast, everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And I'm surprised we've got a minimal amount of difficulties today. And I am so blessed, but (laughs) they're still happening. And I'm flubbing left and right. Anyway, I I read your book and I actually uh, have about seven pages of uh, computer notes here on it. I'm waving it before the camera. Uh, I could use a good critique. Oh, geez. Uh, Matter of fact, last week we had a friend of yours on the show, a dear friend of mine. Um, He's even come down here to South Carolina to speak at my tea party, Gregory Wrightstone. And if you ask Gregory about me, he will tell you I was his first. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was the first no. person to ever Oh, my goodness. Him. Well, ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> I got something on so him Gregory, now. <laughs> yeah, you got something on him. Hey, I, I heard about this girl, Annie Bellis, and you. She was the first, huh? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, your book parallels what he has written, uh, and his was written, I, oh, jeez, was it? three or four years ago. And yes. he was one of the first ones that was ringing the knell of the, the fallacies of the, what they're pushing on climate change, the climate catastrophe that Chuck Schumer wants Biden to declare. It has to be, you have to declare a climate emergency right now. The world is going to fall apart in less than 10 years. Really? Yeah, not really. Yeah, uh, no. it's, a, it's, a, it's a really ridiculous scam. Uh, the idea that something invisible, which carbon dioxide is, is the whole basis of my book, uh, n- not just carbon dioxide, but radiation and things that are so far away, like coral reefs and polar bears, that nobody can go and look at it for themselves and see whether or not they're being told the truth about these things. Nobody can look across the, the bay or across the street and say, look what that CO2 is doing over there. So everybody who is buying into this is doing so by listening to activists, media, politicians, and scientists on serial government grants, all of whom have huge skin in that game. They're making their living from the scare story, and they don't want you to suspect that perhaps they're pulling the wool over your eyes, but that's what they are doing, and these are made-up stories. They call them narratives which is a book that belongs in fiction, not in science. I mean, a word that belongs in fiction, not in science. Yet they get away with it because nobody can check them. Nobody can, can prove it because you can't see it or you can't be there. And so science is based on personal observation at the beginning. That's how discoveries are found. You have to be able to see it with your eyes or with an instrument Uh, in order to show that it's actually there. And the perfect example of this is GMOs, the genetically modified food crops that have been adopted all over the world, and billions of people have eaten the meals from those crops without a single stomachache, yet they say there's something dangerous in the GMOs. Well, it must be invisible because they can't even show it to you on their hand or even under a 30 million times electron microscope. But the funny thing is it doesn't have a name. You'd think if there was something dangerous in GMOs that it would have a name, like that it was a protein or something, and that it would have a chemical formula. No, it does not have a chemical formula. Therefore, the only conclusion is that that invisible catastrophe does not even exist, whereas CO2 and radiation do exist, and they're invisible, so therefore they can make up stories about them that you can't confirm. But with GMOs, there actually isn't anything there. So there you go. Well, you know, I, I have to I have to laugh because you know I've I've got a button I love to wear around when I want to not uh, really annoy people that Gregory gave me. I love CO two, and um, my mother, God bless her, uh, she's now living with me because she's uh, become invil- an invalid and I have to take care of her. Uh, but she brought with her this little scrawny um, petunia. And I put it in the windowsill where my cats love to sit. And, of course, you know, living creatures exhale 
CO2. And ever since I did it, it went from this little tiny thing into this huge monster that I'm going to have to repot probably. And you know, people don't realize plants need CO2. Without CO2, we as humans are not going to get oxygen to breathe. So the more you take CO2 out of the air, the more you're going to kill us. What part of that don't they get? Well, I don't think I'm going to be able to teach you much. That's pretty good because <laughs> my, my favorite line is I used to laugh at people who said their plants grew better when they talked to them. Well, yes, you're ex- exactly what you're saying. You are breathing 40,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide onto your plants when you get up close and talk to them. And that's like super saturated fertilizer for them. The air only has 400 parts per million and you're breathing 100 times as much of their food, what they need, the primary thing they need for carbon to be turned into sugar by photosynthesis. Just add water and there you go, you've got glucose. And glucose is the energy for all life on earth. It's the sugar that we use. It's what fats are made with. It's what starches are made with. It's the basic energy for all life, and it's made by plants using carbon dioxide, as you well know, and not enough people do know that. And they, they should be taught that carbon dioxide is the basis of life, not that it is a pollutant, which the Obama administration succeeded in getting passed into law by the EPA, that CO2 is an air pollution, when in fact it is the food for life. And there isn't as much of it in the air today as there used to be way in the past. It's declined over the millennia. And it's, it's a very good thing that we've come along and put some back in the atmosphere where it belongs. You know, I, I always have to laugh when, when you, you listen to these people trying to argue for climate uh, disasters. And I, I turned around and after reading your book and I got to the point to the part where you were talking about the CO2 and plants and everything else, I said, I, I did a little thinking. I'm wondering why my plants, when I plant my garden, my tomatoes and peppers and stuff, thrive better in my backyard than in my front yard. And then I realized I've got a burn pit in the backyard. And yeah, here in South Carolina, you're, you're allowed to burn your waste on your private property. And then I said, doy, you idiot. <laughs> that's why you get more fruits off of your, your vines in the backyard because you've got a burn pit you're using back there. And it's something as simple as that that could increase the abundance of food on our planet. And yet, the more we take CO2 out, the more we expand areas like the Sahara Desert. If anyone were to look at a satellite picture of our, our globe and look at the growing areas that are now becoming deserts because of what's going on over there? Well, the thing is, is that people think, you know, the, the people who are pushing the climate change disaster, emergency, crisis, whatever you want to call it, would like you to think the world began in around 1850, you know, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. When CO2 was at 280 parts per million, one of the lowest levels it's ever been in the history of the Earth, and we've since put it up to 415, which is causing a greening of the Earth all around the planet. And interestingly, China and India, the two most populous countries in the world, are contributing more than anyone else because of their massive agricultural industries and their massive planting of new trees over the last few decades realizing that they've 
deforested areas for firewood, etc., that needed to be replanted. So it just goes to show you that the two countries with the highest population in the world are actually increasing the most food for plants in the atmosphere than any other countries. We're all involved in it because everybody's using fossil fuels everywhere. And what people don't realize is that the fossil fuels were produced by plants in the first place. Plants that pulled carbon dioxide out of the air on land and under the water in the sea, the plankton in the sea that is photosynthetic. And that CO2 has been locked up in deposits, in sediments, one of which we call fossil fuels, the other of which we call limestone. A lot of people don't know that limestone is actually produced by living things. The shells of marine organisms are made with calcium carbonate, the coral reefs. Imagine some places you've got coral reefs that have built up five, six miles deep of limestone, the Dolomite Mountains in Italy, for example. There's a vast store of carbon that used to be in the environment and in the oceans that has been locked up permanently. And we've come along as CO2 has steadily declined for 500 million years because of this and started to release it back into the air where it can fertilize all of the plants in the world. And it's a good thing we did this because it was going down to such levels that at the height of the last major glaciation 20,000 years ago, it sunk to 180 parts per million, which is only 30 ppm above the death of plants. Plants just don't need CO2. They need a certain level of CO2 in the same way that we need a certain level of oxygen in the atmosphere to survive. The same goes for plants. And I know that's a bit technical, but everybody should understand that because that's the basis of life on Earth. Patrick. Well, you know, this. Oh, go ahead, Curtis. Because I was just going to follow up with also the more you have a healthy plant and a healthy CO2 level, you also have moisture retention in the ground and less soil erosion. So it, it benefits not just the plants growing, but it also helps advance the rest of a healthy environment. Go ahead. Yes. Curtis. Well, the, just one one short point. More CO2 not only makes plants grow better and faster and increases our agricultural and forestry production, but it also makes plants more efficient with water because when you have more CO2, they don't have to have so many places for CO2 to come into the plant. They can get enough with smaller openings. Therefore, less water gets out of the plant as a result. And so therefore, plants become more efficient with water. And you will see in the U.S., southwest trees are coming out onto former grasslands that were too dry for trees prior to our increase in co2 sorry go ahead please okay go ahead curtis oh we all know that the educational system that we have especially in our urban cities and and whatnot are dumbing down people isn't it possible that people when they hear the word carbon and pollution they are thinking carbon monoxide rather than dioxide, and that could be one of the reasons why people um, believe in it because they're not really getting, you know, to what carbon they're talking about. You make such a good point, Curtis, because chemistry is quite complicated in that way. 
People say carbon emissions. They don't mean carbon emissions. Carbon is like soot. Carbon is also diamonds are made of pure carbon. Graphite in your pencil is made with pure carbon. But and soot is 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 carbon black is soot, which is pure carbon. But carbon dioxide is a completely different thing, and so is carbon monoxide. So when you combine two atoms to make a new element, to make a new molecule, I'm sorry, uh, a new compound, a compound being a combination of different atoms, different elements being put together, you almost always get something that is completely different from the original pieces that you put together. So it's not like building Lego. It's, it's almost like magic because you've got carbon, which is soot, and you've got oxygen, which is what we breathe, and you turn that into carbon dioxide, CO2. We don't need that. It's, it, carbon dioxide is useless for us. We breathe it out as a waste product, whereas plants use it as their main food. So chemistry is complicated, and uh, people just use, you throw the word carbon around like as if it's soot going into the air when it's not. It's carbon dioxide, which is the primary food for all life because if there were no plants animals couldn't exist animals get their energy and their nutrition from plants and even when we eat an animal that has eaten another animal which we don't do a lot of we usually eat animals that have eaten plants directly but if we did eat a tiger for example we're still eating plants because the tiger ate an animal that ate plants and that's what it comes down to. So plants are the very beginning. Green plants are the very beginning of the support for all of the animal and insect life on this earth. You know, one only has to look to Israel. If you remember when Israel was reformed, uh, it was a, a barren desert. The Israelis went in there and began to plant. And it's one of the most luscious and most well-produced agricultural areas in our world as small as it is so you know they are the perfect example and yet they have no problem with co2 i've been to jerusalem annie and it is a miracle what they've done and what it shows is is that you can't just stand around and think the world's going to make a living for you you can't just expect things to improve by themselves and that is why the slogan I've adopted for this point in time is hope trumps fear. In other words, <laughs> if you have hope, right, which it seems to me was exuded by the previous administration, if you have hope for a better future, like making things better again, you can get that better than if you're afraid and cowering in fear because you will fail if you're cowering in fear. And so Make America Great com c contrasted with we're heading for a dark winter, which I believe has repeated more than once. A dark winter is about fear. Making a country or the world or your life or your city or your family better is hope. We don't know the future. We make the future, though. We make the future with hope for a better world. We make a mess with fear of everything, like we're all going to die. And of course we're all going to die. And I'm, I'm, I believe in my heart that the people who 
buy into the death of the world, that it's going to end in 12 years, like AOC says, they are people who are afraid of their own mortality. They fear their own death, and they project that on the whole world, as if when they die, the world ends. Because we all know every single living thing is going to die, but it's also going to be renewed by the reproduction of new creatures and species. And this has been going on since the beginning of life. And one thing I like to point out to people, which is a bit of a revelation to to some, is that every single living thing on this earth today, every bacteria, every insect, every plant, every person, represents a successful, continuous reproduction from the beginning of life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So you represent a reproduction through three and a half billion years. It's not as if we, you know, they say the human species didn't evolve until 500,000 years ago or whatever. Yeah, but they evolved from something that had evolved from something that had evolved from something. And that was a continuous line of successful breeding and reproduction from the beginning of life on Earth. And we should remember that, that we're all on the same time plane here. And in fact, the species and the individuals who have lasted for 3.5 billion years are the toughest, meanest, badass survivors that ever existed on this planet. Because our line, our lineage, has been through more experience and change than the lineages that preceded us. In other words, it was easier for life at the beginning because there wasn't as much competition. And as species have grown in numbers, most people don't realize that biodiversity, the number of species there are on the planet, are the highest they ever have been in the history of life in this era, in the, in, during this ice age and, and around this you know, last five, five million years, which is like a blink in nature's eye. There are more species on Earth now than there ever have been. And a, a good graph in National Geographic, February 1999, if anybody has their old National Geographic's handy, will show you that ascent of the diversity of life despite five major extinction events that have occurred along that timeline, there it is. And so the power of life to differentiate and expand into different niches and into different uh, categories has just been phenomenal right from the get-go. And here we are now at this time, In the history of evolution, we should be celebrating with every cell in our body that we are here and alive and experiencing this incredible world that we live in. Well, I'm going to to ask you, Zinger, which probably probably people have asked you before, but I wanted to know how you had your epiphany. Because reading about your background, you came from a very liberal, very secular background, and you were one of the founders of Greenpeace, and you led it for quite a while. But somehow or other, you had that aha moment, and you became the person you are today. What was that major epiphany that finally said, maybe there's something wrong here, and I'm looking at the wrong side of the coin? No, it's not really like that, you know. Uh, Annie, I have always been uh, immersed in nature. I grew up on a floating village on the northwest tip of Vancouver Island with no road to it. And I went to school by boat every day in the rainforest of the Pacific Northwest in a village of less than 100 people. And when the road came when I was a teenager, we figured, oh, boy, this place is going to explode now. Half the people used the road to get out. And uh, we learned something about human nature that day. Most people would rather live where there's a mall 
than out in the middle of the wilderness where I grew up. So I, I, I gained an innate appreciation for nature. And it's not that we were liberal. Uh, my family was a family of discipline and hard work. Uh, my father was a logger, a boss logger, uh, and inherited that from his father. In a rough West Coast environment where it rains 150 inches a year and storms all winter. And so I grew up in nature and I've been in nature all my life. I still live on the ocean. I have always lived on the ocean. And uh, I, 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 I didn't have an epiphany in that sense. In, in, I just followed myself through this. And I realized as a PhD student in ecology, which is what I, I gravitated towards life science early on. I was always interested in science from, from 12 years of age. Uh, and I've always been interested in politics. I read Bertrand Russell all through all his books uh, when I was in my teenage years, uh, political and scientific. And so I, I, I came to realize in, in the late 60s, early 70s, it was the height of the Cold War, the threat of all-out nuclear war, the height of the Vietnam War, and the emerging consciousness of the environment. The word ecology had not yet been printed in the popular press in the late 1960s. No one had ever heard of the word, but environment was becoming more and more prominent in the language. And so I decided to get up and do something about it because the pollution was really bad in those days and people were still blowing off atomic bombs all around the world to show their muscles off. And it was a scary time. So that's why I got involved then. And as I went in through Greenpeace for 15 years in the top committee, leading many of the campaigns to save the whales and stop toxic waste, and stop nuclear weapons testing, gradually Greenpeace changed. It wasn't me that changed. Greenpeace changed from a noble cause by volunteers to save civilization from nuclear war. In other words, we had a strong humanitarian orientation in the early years. But as time went on and we drifted away from that issue towards nature more, uh, somehow the peace got lost from Greenpeace, and now we had all, only the green and then people started referring to humans as the enemies of nature. The human species is the enemy of the earth. And boy, that, that finished me from a philosophical point of view, because th that's way too much like original sin. Like we are the only evil species on the planet, worse than the worst disease uh, organism or whatever. And th so I, I was totally turned off when that happened, and I was looking for something else to do when I got... The, the reason to get out was that my fellow directors, I was one of five international directors for the last six years of my time in Greenpeace till 86. None of them had any formal science education. They were all political activists, social activists, entrepreneurs. Now you could actually make a living in the environmental movement and even support a family. So they decided, these fellow directors of mine decided that because chlorine is a constituent of DDT and PCBs and other things called chlorinated hydrocarbons, that we should just ban chlorine because that was the common denominator. And I'm going, you guys, it's one of the elements in the periodic table, you know, like iron <laughs> and aluminum and oxygen and things. And you, you can't ban that. I mean, it's, it's part of nature. It's part of the universe. But that was sort of a joke. The real hard uh, subject is that chlorine is the most important element of all the 94 natural elements on this planet for public health and medicine. Adding chlorine to drinking water, swimming pools, and 
and spas was the biggest advance in public health as it stopped waterborne communicable diseases like cholera. It made a huge difference to disease transmission throughout the world and is one of the reasons we all live longer today. The second is that our medicine, our pharmaceuticals, 84% of them are created with chlorine chemistry and 25% of them actually have chlorine in them. If you look at your cold and flu uh, remedies, for example, you'll see a little CL. And this is the thing. Chlorine as an element is a dangerous gas. It was used as a chemical weapon in World War I. Uh, so, but when you combine it with other things, it becomes an essential thing. And, and that's what chemistry is. Chemistry is most amazing. As I say, it's not like Lego where all the blocks are the same. It's two different elements combining into something that is completely different from either one of them that you began with. And people, toxicology, like that's what it came down to, to a large extent. And toxicology is not simple because many compounds like, like salt, for example, NaCl, sodium chloride, are essential nutrients at a low level, but at a high level, they're deadly. If you, if you ingest all at once five tablespoons of table salt, you will die because it just dries up your stomach and sucks the life out of you. Whereas if you have just a little bit of salt, you will live. Because if you don't have any salt, you will die. So toxicology, the, the main rule of toxicology is the dose is the poison. Actually, anything can kill you. Even, even all the essential nutrients, if you take too many of them, even, of course, as we know, water can kill you. And it's very essential for our survival. But if you ingest it into your lungs, you will die. So that's, that's why I had to leave Greenpeace in the end because I could not belong to an organization that was taking on a campaign to ban chlorine worldwide. That was the slogan that they used, and they went on to do it after I left, and now they deny that they ever did it because they realize how stupid it was. Well, you know, I have to laugh because I'm just slightly younger than you. I'm not going to say how much, <laughs> but in the, the 70s, it was, uh, the, it's not global warming, it, it's global chilling the world is going to get colder we're going to freeze to death but what people yep. don't realize we are climbing out of an ice age at this point the world was warmer when our lord christ walked on it two thousand years ago than it is today so back then it's like we're all going to freeze to death it's going to be a frozen tundra meanwhile uh, we did survive an ice age that gave us areas such as long island new york uh, they wouldn't exist without that ice age. Um, but now today we've gone from the world is freezing and you've got to wear earth shoes. And God, I'm telling you, those were the most uncomfortable shoes I've ever owned. Um, to now the polar bears are dying off. And in your book, you address the issue with the polar bears. And it is so apropos that the, the book has come out now where Biden has stopped the XL pipeline. And one of the things that helped the polar bears come back is that the XL pipeline, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, the, it, it, it emits heat, which the polar bears attract to, which also attracts other uh, game and creatures to the area. And it's a whole new ecosystem because there's warmth coming out of the XL pipeline. But now it's closed. So not only has he killed millions of jobs, 
and millions of dollars or billions of dollars to the economy. And I think um, the Energy Commission that's suing them is saying something like $33.6 billion he just killed. Uh, but you're not helping the polar bears stay alive. How cruel you are, President Biden. How cruel. <laughs> you see I'm on a roll today. <laughs> well, Annie, let me just give you my story about polar bears. Um, first is polar bears would not exist if it were not for climate change. As polar bears evolved from the European uh, Eurasian brown bear, which we call grizzly bear because they came here on the land bridge about 15,000 years ago along with the people. And so polar bears did not exist until this Pleistocene Ice Age, which we are still in now, this being an interglacial period, one of about 45, in between the major glaciations, about 45, that have occurred in the last 2.6 million years, which we call the Pleistocene Ice Age. And so that came, the Pleistocene Ice Age came at the tail end of a 50 million year cooling period out of the Eocene Thermal Maximum. This is all on the internet. Wikipedia has actually quite good material on this stuff because it's not political. It's about science and geology and time. And the polar bear evolved because the Arctic turned cold. Up until about 3 million years ago, Canada's Arctic islands, which are now barren of trees because it's so cold and inhospitable to most life, were forested, completely forested, and full of large camels, giant camels, bigger than the ones there are today. And that came to an end as the earth continually cooled down to coming into this Pleistocene Ice Age. So that's how polar bears came to be, was because it got cold. Today, we have polar bears roaming around the whole Arctic area and around the North Pole. And in 1973, wildlife biologists became concerned that the polar bear population was declining due to overhunting. It, it had become easy to fly to the Arctic, find an Inuit guide, and go out and get a rug for in front of your fireplace. And this was happening too frequently. The polar bears are not a huge population any time in history. It's a pretty tough place to live up there. So they deal with having to eat seals through the holes in the ice that they come up to give their pubs birth. So it's, not, it's, it's a harsh environment. But anyways, they were declining to where there was probably less than 10,000 of them left around the whole Arctic in 1973. So all the polar nations, including the United States and Russia and Canada and Norway and Denmark, which owns Greenland where there's polar bears, all came together and signed a treaty to end unrestricted hunting of polar bears in the Arctic, which is still enforced today and is enforced, fully enforced. Some countries banned, like Norway, banned hunting polar bears altogether. Other countries like Canada allowed a very small number to be hunted as long as you hired an Inuit guide to give them some work to do it. So today, polar bears have grown to four or five times, as many as 50,000. The average guess is around 38,000, somewhere between 25 and 50,000 polar bears today. So the population is extremely healthy. The slight warming of the Arctic and the lowering of summer ice, winter ice is still as extensive as it ever was because it gets cold up there, but summer ice has receded, thus making the ocean available for the sunlight to grow more plankton. That may be why the bears are, the bears are in such good health today. But you say that and you get fired from your university position 
like Susan Crockford did at the University of Victoria when she made it clear in papers and scientific knowledge that that this was the situation. Well, meanwhile, all these so-called scientists who go up there for two weeks were on serial government grants to continue to study the polar bear's decline, which was a lie. And that's been exposed now. The, the Inuit of Nunavut in the Canadian part of the high Arctic have passed a law called the Man- Polar Bear Management Act. I mean, they have to manage the polar bear population because it's grown so large that they're going to funerals of their friends who've been attacked and killed by polar bears, which are roaming freely, of course, across the whole Arctic area. And so it's, 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 it's one of the biggest success stories in conservation in the past hundred years. And our children are being told that the polar bears are going to go extinct and that makes them scared. So they're using fear in our schools and in all our institutions now. And as I said, hope trumps fear. It, it hope is so much better than fear for the future because it, it causes people to do things that will make improvements. And as I said earlier, Uh, Good things don't just happen by themselves. They happen because people do things, believe are good. And this whole thing about scaring everybody into the world coming to an end, and it's going to be too hot for life. And that's why I put the little Bible-looking prophet on the book cover with a sign saying, you will perish in flames. Because that's basically what they're saying. And it's a, 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 I stole it from Ghostbusters. I don't know if you remember the line when Rick Moranis came up to the horse and buggy in, in Central Park, and as running past the driver, he screamed up at him, you will perish in flames. And uh, that, that's, that's about how uh, fictitious this whole thing is, like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, but polar bears are so nice and cuddly looking like they are in the Coca-Cola commercials. But no, they don't kill people. They're not, they're, they're not responsible for the deaths of our fellow humans. Nah. Really? Oh, oh, yeah. Well, you know, if it wasn't for sled dogs and a little bit of fire, but mostly sled dogs, the Inuit could never have colonized the Arctic because those bears are hungry and they're big. And so the dogs would corral the bears, would surround the bears, and then the, the Inuit would go in with spears. Uh, they had to go down south to get wood. So they, they had a big conflict with the Dene people who lived where there were trees further south. But they'd have to go and sneak in there if they wanted to get wood to make their kayaks and to make their sleds. Because there was no wood where they lived, and there still isn't. And so they would get these long poles sharp on the tip, and the dogs would surround the polar bear, and then they'd come in from all sides with these spears and jab the bear to death. And, but if it hadn't been for the dogs, they could never have survived in that climate. It's a very interesting uh, uh, commensural relationship or symbiotic relationship between the dogs and the people because the people would throw their bones uh, to the dogs after they'd eaten the seal, and uh, the, the dogs protected the people from the polar bears. Now, you had mentioned Dr. Crockett, and this is a really sad story because she was, was with the University of Victoria, and the University of Victoria uh, proclaims Uh, Quote, the University of Victoria in both word and deed supports academic freedom and free debate on academic issues. Well, right now they have stripped her of any academic affiliation, which, you know, causes her, she's lost any chance of grants. Uh, 
uh, any chance of the use of the library to collaborate with other individuals. Uh, she be, is, is, she's a pariah simply because she exercised her academic and scientific freedom. That's right, Annie. And it's the same thing happened to Dr. Peter Ridd at the University of James Cook University in Queensland, Australia, for daring to question the scientists who were saying that 93% of the Great Barrier Reef is dead or dying. Well, they use words like dying, about to die, bleached, uh, all kinds of words that don't really mean die dead, but might as well mean dead. And the Great Barrier Reef is actually in good health, just like the polar bears are. But people can't see it. It's way offshore in the ocean, in, in the tropics, underwater. So only a few people get to see it. And it's bigger than Texas. So there's no way that the average person is going to be able to look at all of it and find out what percent of it might have died from a certain cause. But again, people forget that everything dies at one time or another. And sometimes there are mass deaths in populations in nature from diseases or from hurricanes. Hurricanes are the worst enemy of coral reefs, you know, not carbon dioxide and not warming because the, the, the most biodiverse coral reefs in the world by far are in the warmest oceans in the world, the Indonesian Coral Triangle, as it's called. And this is just a fact. Actually, the Indonesian Coral Triangle has the most biodiversity of nearly every category of life in the sea, whether it's reef fish or, or jellyfish or coral. They've got more species there than anywhere. So if the earth warms, the coral will actually expand as oceans warm around that area. And coral used to occupy a far wider range than it does today. Today, corals are not found as reefs outside the tropics or the subtropics. They, they barely go into the subtropics. And even there, they have a, a, just a pittance of numbers of species that they do in the warmer oceans of the real tropics, the equatorial zone. And so the fact of the matter is, is that corals would, in, would increase in their amount if the, if the world warmed, and they've got everybody thinking that warming the world will kill all the corals, which is a absolute and complete lie. Well, you know, there are so many lies that they're putting out there. One of them is bleaching. Now, this is a natural occurrence on coral reefs. It doesn't mean the reef is dying or because it's bleached, it's, it's, it's gone. What is, what is coral bleaching, and what should we actually well, be looking for? Coral is a really interesting uh, group of species because they have a symbiotic relationship, sort of like a lichen is a symbiosis between an algae and a fungus. The green part on top of a lichen being the algae and the white part underneath being a fungus. And they live together and contribute to each other's survival. With corals, you have this, the, the, the polyp, which is an animal related to a jellyfish, which is the, the animal that lives inside the little holes on the coral uh, skeleton. Uh, and it is clear. It has no color. But the, the, the phytoplankton, the symbionts, as they're referred to, or zooxanthellae in the real technical language, they are plankton. And they are tiny, tiny things. And millions of them are ingested into each one of the polyps where they provide photosynthesis and help feed the polyp. They feed the animal with sugar. And in turn, the animal is giving them protection from being grazed by, by, by zooplankton or, 
or you know whatever wants to eat them if they were not protected inside the actual polyp organism inside the coral reef itself so that they're a complicated animal but when they get stressed by cold or heat or other factors they eject the plankton into the sea and then they become white which is why they're called bleached because calcium carbonate limestone which is what the coral shell is made of is white and the the animal the polyp is clear so it doesn't give any color to the coral so it looks like it's been bleached but bleached is a metaphor it doesn't mean they've been bleached with chlorine bleach it doesn't mean they've been bleached by sunlight if you know how sunlight bleaches wood for example it's not this mm-hmm. it's a totally different phenomenon it's just that it happens to be white because it's made of calcium carbonate and those bleached corals can survive for three or four months without any plankton they can breed during that period so if in fact they never get to have their plankton back again which they almost always do they can die after having reproduced and sent out millions of new polyps into the sea to build new coral reefs so that's why bleaching doesn't kill coral reefs because first off they're not dead and secondly even if they do eventually die which all things do they have bred new species new new individuals by the millions when corals breed there's just all these little eggs flying up in the ocean and drifting off to distant places to recolonize other areas so you're not going to see the extinction of coral reefs and they're predicting the extinction of coral reefs and polar bears by 2100 they're saying that's what's going to happen that's because they're afraid they fear i have hope and I know that's not going to happen, actually, because coral reefs have been here for 500 million years, through thick and thin, through cold and heat, through all kinds of changes to the earth. And they're still here, and they're not going anywhere soon. Well, you know, there's approximately, I think you said, 1.74 million species that have been identified on earth and named and categorized. And back in May of 2019, you and Mark Morano appeared before the U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee, and I love this name, uh, the Subcommittee on Water, Oceans, and Wildlife. Wow. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> and one, And you it? had – yeah, I just – someone had a sense of humor. Um, but, you know, you also had facing you um, people opposing what you were speaking about, and – they were saying that there's one million species face extinction due to climate change soon. And there's only 1.74 species on Earth. So we're going to lose over half of our living species very soon. Well, actually, what they claim is that there are not just 1.7 million species. There's actually 8.7 million species. So they are claiming that there are 8 million species that we have never discovered or named yet. So therefore, if 1 million species go extinct overnight, we won't even know it happened because we didn't know they existed in the first place. That is the United Nations Committee on Biodiversity making up that story, that there's, that there's 7 million species that we've never discovered yet, that there's 8.7 when we've only discovered 1.7. So... It's a complete fake thing from the very get-go because 
you can they say that 8.7 they say it's the most accurate estimate yet by scientists how can you estimate there's 8.7 million of something when you don't know what they are you they have no name <laughs> it's just like the bad thing in gmos they have no name <laughs> they have no picture of them they have no scientific name like every species has a latin name you know like homo sapiens for example is our latin name and every species on earth has one except these other seven million that don't exist because that's what i conclude they don't exist because we don't know they are there you can't it's just like ufos right anybody can claim that there's three hundred thousand ufos have already landed on the earth right and they can say that's the best <laughs> estimate in science. And yet, oh, obviously, obviously, it's just made up out of thin air. And they're getting away with that. United Nations scientists, they call themselves, in front of a democratically controlled committee on wildlife. So Mark Morano and I gave our spiel. We explained how extinction of species had declined by 90% in the last 100 years because people care about it now and put into place recovery programs for any species that appears to be endangered. And we've been very successful, like with polar bears putting the treaty in to stop overhunting. It worked, and it's worked with hundreds of different species that have not gone extinct because of our intervention, often in our own uh, overhunting and, and things like that. So we, we gave our our. our, our, our our testimony, it was reported quite widely in the press, mostly by the fake news who made it look as though we were representing big oil or something. And when in fact, both Mark Morano and I are lifelong environmentalists. And the, 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 then at the end of the meeting, they dismissed us. And three weeks later, they, hold, they held exactly the same meeting by a different committee with the same UN people, but they didn't invite us. And that became the official record of the Congress of the United States of America. <clears throat> Our testimony was never written into any record because they just said, sorry, we can't have that. We'll have to have another meeting. And that's how it worked. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, and that's how, that's how the Democrats in Congress are dealing with the issue of endangered species, biodiversity, wildlife, <clears throat> and oceans. It's a, it's, a, it's a travesty of science. Dr. Moore. Go ahead, Kurt. <laughs> when you, you think about the environmental movement, especially here in the United States, and you mentioned this earlier in a way, um, they they blame humans, you know, for everything. Um, as you stated, we're, we're the enemy enemies of nature. How important do you think it is to start teaching our youth critical thinking and how young should start and you know, since the schools are failing, where can people who don't know critical thinking naturally learn how to think, you know, critically? What a good question. You know, as a university student in my second year of science, I was offered, along with the other science students, a course in critical engineering, sorry, in critical thinking by the arts faculty. And so that was a real course, a half, a full semester on critical thinking and the, the the first lesson we learned was never believe a story where the headline or the first paragraph has the word may might or could in it 
because it should say may or may not, might or might not, could or could not. Because could, may, and Mike, Mike, they are not definitive statements. They're, they're total conjecture. They're, they're, they're not saying anything that, that they're claiming to be true. They're saying it might be true. Well, it also might not be true. So that's what you have to read into any article that starts with that. And I, the, in my book, actually, I start out with an example where there's a headline in USA Today that says, Africa's baobab trees are dying at an unprecedented rate, and climate change may be to blame, is the subhead. Well, yeah, but it may not be to blame. And actually, in the article, they never give any evidence indicating that climate change has anything to do with the baobab trees dying. It's, it's the oldest ones that are dying, apparently, which is really unusual in populations, isn't it? Never do the oldest ones die, right? What if you had a headline <laughs> saying China's oldest people are dying, right? So that's how stupid some of this stuff really is. And that's where critical thinking needs to take you to analyze what you're being told. And we went on to dissect a whole Time magazine, which today would be even a better thing to do because Time magazine at least had some reasonable things in it back then. But now it's just an organ for misinformation. And so everybody, but I don't know if the, if the term critical thinking even exists anymore in the educational system. I've never seen it mentioned. And what we're expected to do is to believe everything we're told by the fake media and the teachers who are teaching all this weird stuff about transgender and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to even get into that discussion because I, I hear they're going to let biological men compete with biological women in sports. And it was only 100 years ago or so that women finally, after thousands of years, got the right to own property and have a vote. I mean, they were non-persons before then. And what a tragedy that any right of women is taken away, even the smallest one. And this is a pretty big one when girls can win scholarships by, 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 by winning in a, a track meet uh, or any sport. Uh, so I, I'm upset about that because I think it has to do with biology uh, and with science. And uh, they're defying science in this, in this. And there should be critical thinking about that because it's, it's one thing to be a biological woman and it's another thing to think you are one or even say pretend you are one identify as usually you say I can identify Paul as an innocent person but to take out the Paul and just identify as then it refers to yourself so you're saying that I identify as a kangaroo for example uh, you know, so where have I got to with critical thinking? Probably in a lot of hot water with people who, whose minds are made up on this subject. But critical thinking is exactly what should happen, Curtis, exactly. Because th this, is, th this, is in, this is the intellect of the human mind at work in knowing when to question what they are being told is gospel. We have to have that in our brain all the time especially with the fake news. I, I coined the term, I said it's not only fake news, it's fake science about the climate oh, yeah. change issue. And, you know, fake news is one thing. It's a, it can just be a story, right? But fake science is an even more important thing. 
because fake science means you are actually telling a complete and absolute lie about the reality of the world when you spread fake science. And the whole climate change catastrophe is fake science from the get-go. I will say it once, I've said it a million times, there is nothing unusual about the weather today compared to the last 10,000 years of the Earth's climate long before we started using fossil fuels. Nothing is unusual. And in fact, it's very clear that extreme weather events in virtually every category, whether it's hurricanes or tornadoes or floods or droughts, is declining slightly. Those graphs are available to anybody who wants to look at them. The people who are saying that extreme weather events are increasing are even defying the judgment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the United Nations, which even though they claim that humans are the main cause of the slight warming that has occurred over the last few centuries, they do not claim that extreme weather events are increasing because there's no evidence for it. Well, I like to call it flat earth science because it's just as phony as it was back then. Uh, but you are correct. You know, extreme weather conditions are declining. The only difference is is that because now we have instant media 24-7 and Internet and smart devices, it's being recorded and reported more than it was in the past because we didn't have the ability to record and report. So now we're reporting it more, so it seems like it's more, and the media gets to sell their story and hook you in. So let's make a man-made disaster. Don't let, what was it, Rahm Emanuel said, don't let a good uh, disaster, you know, whatever he called it, you know, slip away, Price. always use it type of yeah. thing. A good crisis, yep, well, yeah, right. That, that's, it, about it, the most cyn- please, that's about please. the most cynical thing I've heard lately. I mean, that is cynicism at its heart, is don't ever waste a disaster. You know, take advantage of it. Uh, it's, it's, it's a ter- terrible thing. But the real it's problem immoral. here is people, people forget what the weather was like three years ago, never mind what it was like a thousand years ago. You know, and there, there was actually weather a thousand years ago and 2,000 years ago and a million years ago. And we know a lot about what the climate was like all through history, way back hundreds of millions of years. We've got a temperature record and a carbon dioxide record going back. It is clear that there is no cause-effect relationship of any sort between CO2 and temperature. They're out of whack more often than they're in whack. There's a wonderful website titled Spurious Correlations. And this is a scientific concept that a lot of people don't know, that correlation and causation are two completely different things. Correlation is when two things appear to be operating in concert. They appear to be going in the same direction. And one of the fun ones is ice cream consumption and shark attacks. They are in perfect mm-hmm. correlation like through time. Right? They, they, I they, like that part. <laughs> because, because in the summer people go to the beach and have an ice cream cone and then go swimming and might get attacked by a shark, in the winter they don't do either of those things. So there's a perfect winter to summer correlation with shark attacks and ice cream consumption peaking in the winter and declining, peaking in the summer and declining in the winter. Whereas a causal relationship is where you can basically prove that one thing causes another. You see, with ice cream consumption and shark attacks, it's a third factor which causes both of them. It's temperature, how warm it is or how cold it is outside today. That's what makes the correlation between shark attacks 
and ice cream consumption. But to have a causal relationship, you have to show that this causes this. You have to show that CO2 causes the temperature to go up. And there is no such proof in science. They are assuming that because CO2 is a mild greenhouse gas, that therefore it controls the whole Earth's temperature. There are so many other factors involved, the main one being clouds versus clear sky. That really affects the temperature of the Earth. And so we don't know the future of climate. The crystal ball is a mythical object. And to pretend that a computer program where the assumptions you put in automatically result in the conclusion that comes out, never varying by a billionth of a degree, because computers don't make stuff up. They just take your assumptions. Maybe you've made them up, and you put it in there, and out comes the other end, the conclusion you were looking for, because it's based on your assumptions. There's a a fun little thing about heretics and skeptics, and they call us climate deniers because we're skeptical as scientists, which is the probably the primary duty of every scientist is to be skeptical. Because if you're not skeptical, you just believe everything you hear. And that's not how science works or how scientists work. Scientists are questioning everything all the time. That is their job, to dig deeper and probe into the reality of what's going on in this world. So the difference between a climate skeptic and a climate heretic is the climate skeptic disagrees with your conclusions your conclusion that CO2 will cause the warming of the earth and has caused it. But a climate heretic will disagree with your assumptions, and that's what you have to go to. Whenever you hear someone making a definitive statement about something, think about what are the assumptions these people are basing that conclusion on. And the assumption that people are basing their conclusion that the earth is warming from CO2 is that CO2 will automatically cause warming of the earth. That's their assumption. And whether it's true or not is open to question. And the fact of the matter is it isn't true if you look back in the history of the climate of this lovely planet we're on here today. Well, I'm willing to bet the people that are digging themselves out of that New York, New Jersey snowstorm are praying for a little bit more climate warming. You know, if you think back about 50 years ago, Back in the 60s, we used to have tremendous, tremendous snowstorms, the 60s and 70s. And then through the 80s and 90s, not so much, and we're seeing less and less. So when I see the snowfall in New York uh, at this late time of the season, I'm laughing. I am laughing. There, there's your climate warming, guys. There's your climate warming. <laughs> yeah, but now they say that cold is caused by climate change, too, and you know, they've, that's why they changed it from global warming to climate change, because now every change can be ascribed to increased CO2, whether it's cooling or warming or storms or droughts or all, everything. So it, it's, it's, it's actually become a bit laughable uh, the way they're, they're, they're framing it. This is, in fact, the modern warm period. Nobody questions that. We're coming out of the Little Ice Age, which peaked at seven, about 1700 A.D., So there's been 300 years of extremely slow but relatively continuous with ups and downs along the way, and we're in one of the ups now. But in fact, if you look at the 6,000-year history since 6,000 years ago, we are in a declining temperature. 
it goes up and then it goes down a little more and then it goes up and it goes down a little more than the last time and goes up and down a little more than the last time. And those graphs are all available. They're easy to find on the internet. That is the Holocene, the graph of the Holocene thermal temperature history. It's there for all to see. During the climatic optimum in the first six to 8,000 years of this Holocene interglacial period, it was warmer than it is now, even though we are in the modern warm period. The Roman warm period was warmer than it is now, as you mentioned earlier. And so was the Minoan warm period before that. And actually this cooling began. The, desert, the, the Sahara Desert was green for 6,000 years, from 10,000, from 12,000 to 6,000 years ago. The Sahara was green. There's maps with red dots showing where the villages were with people herding animals all across the Sahara Desert until it started to cool there was a break in the climate 6,000 years ago, and it started to cool and continues to cool on a net basis to this day. But right now, we happen to be in one of the upticks, which is actually quite a good time to be in. Theoretically, if history bears out the last 6,000 years, it will start to go down again in 100 to 200 years from now. So we don't have to worry in our lifetimes. And as a matter of fact, it's going to take another 80,000 years for it to go back into another glacial maximum period like the one we came out of from 20,000 years ago. So these are long cycles. The, the glacial cycles are 100,000 year cycles. Most people can't get that in their head, but I can because I've been studying the long-term history of the earth for many, many years. And it seems perfectly normal to me to think in million year periods. Well, Dr. Patrick Moore, people can find you on the website that you and Gregory, our friend Gregory Wrightstone, uh, put together, CO2Coalition.org. The name of your book is Fake Invisible Catastrophes and Threats of Doom. Ooh. And it's available on Amazon.com. On Amazon. And for, for Canadians who might be listening, it's on Amazon.ca as well. And it's climbing up in the standings. In Canada is the number one book in ecology at the present time. It's only been out for three weeks, a little less. And in the United States, it's the number one new release in environmental and ecology. So it, it, it's being well You're received. Not Gregory, You're not Gregory Dan? Did you not Gregory Dan from today. number one? He, he sent me. I talked. <laughs> I, Gregory sent me the listing today, and I'm two books ahead of him now. So, but my book is brand new. He's he's had a four-year run at it, so I, I'm I'm not going to uh, tease him about it because he's done very well with his book, and I hope I do well with mine. But my book is easily read by the average person. I encourage parents to buy it, read it, and give it to their high school children and even older kids, however old your kids are. My kids have read it, and they are like already in their 30s. But if your kids are buying into this stuff in the school and being exposed to this climate catastrophe narrative, they need to read this book because it gives them another side of the story. I'm not saying I'm going to convince everybody in the world because a lot of people are set in their thinking, but this book will at least give you an alternative and more positive scenario about the future of the climate and the future of the earth. Well, Dr. Patrick Moore, I want to thank you. It's a great book because when you read it, you hear your voice as it's written. Uh, so God bless you for the hard work you do. Take care, sir. Thank you so much. Very nice to be with you both this morning or this Take afternoon care. for you. Our pleasure. You too. All right. You too.
Bye now. All right, Dr. Dr. Patrick Moore, you can check him out at by going to CO2Coalition.org, where he is there with our good friend, uh, Gregory Wrightstone. Welcome on to the show. He is the chair of a group called Public School Exit. He is also an Army Reserve chaplain, lieutenant colonel, as well as a Gulf War veteran, uh, Gulf War One, and was awarded the Bronze Star Medal, as well as a graduate of the Citadel here in good old Charleston, South Carolina. Want to welcome onto the show Lieutenant Colonel Ray Moore. Good afternoon, sir. How are you today? Thank you. Is this Annie I'm talking to? It is the Hello. one and only Radio okay. Chickadee. <laughs> well, we've met before. I don't know if you remember. I I think I spoke at uh, one of your groups in uh, Beaufort years ago, a um, Tea Party group or something, and uh, well, we had me. a little luncheon. It was maybe around 2014. It's been that long. But wow. we met, and uh, I, I forget what I think my topic was. I was actually running for lieutenant governor of South Carolina at the time, and I think you had okay. me yeah. Yeah, on that particular topic. But uh, And I was running to put my agenda forward, you know, which is getting out of public education and getting entirely into Christian schools or homeschooling, which is what we've been doing for nearly 25 years. So thank you for having me on today. It is our pleasure. As a matter of fact, um, the church I belong to, which was established in 1712, um, started up a number of years ago, I think back in 2012, no, yeah, 2012, our own Christian uh, church uh, uh, school, classical Christian. What's the, what, what, Holy what's the name of the church? At a parish oh, I've, I've, Is that a Trinity classical school? Yep. Hello? Yeah, I visited yeah. there. I spent a whole day there visiting that school and surveying it, uh, boy, probably been two or three years now. Met with uh, Lawrence. I think he was a headmaster. Yeah, Chad, so I'll, Chad I'll, is still there. Yeah, I'm familiar with that school. Yeah. and saw what a good job you were doing. It was quite impressive. Yeah, yeah we are, Bishop Lawrence's um, son. Yeah. We've got two of his sons now pastoring at the church. <laughs> okay. What's the name of the church? It's the parish of St. Helena. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. we, we uh, my wife both... My wife and myself have some family roots in Beaufort County. She's a Pinckney from Charleston, and uh, she has relatives <laughs> in Beaufort County. And, you know, okay, well, hey, thanks for having me on today, and uh, I'm familiar with your program. Now, uh, you have a website up there called Public School Exit, and um, it's a very, very interesting website that you also offer weekly webinars to help parents as well as educators. Tell us about the webinars and, and what do you what you do with them. Okay, let me give you the you know the contact information first. I started a group called ExodusMandate.org in 1997. That was my original group, and I'm the founder and director of that. But uh, in the within the last year, with all the massive growth in K-12 Christian schooling and homeschooling that we're experiencing. Uh, nationwide, really worldwide, um, a group formed called publicschoolexit.com. And they're actually based in San Diego, but they're reaching out nationally. And so the people who started it were sort of, I hate to say, I kind of mentored them. And so they asked me if I would come on and be the chairman of that. And so I'm the chairman of that, but I'm still directing exodusmandate.org. So I've kind of wear several hats. 
Now, what we were doing, back to your question, so for your audience, they can check my webpage out because uh, I'm based in Columbia, South Carolina, which is just a hop, skip, and a jump from Beaufort. And I make quite a few trips to Beaufort, South Carolina yearly. I probably am down there two or three times a year. We have some good friends at uh, Community Bible Church <clears throat> on Paris Island Parkway. And the mm-hmm. pastor is actually a supporter, Carl Brogy. I'm sure some of your people are familiar with him. And uh, they have a thing called uh, Community Bible Church Christian Academy. And they've been running it 30 years, and uh, hundreds of graduates are in their church. Now, it is a church-run homeschool uh, program. So we would mention that to your local people if they're interested in getting into homeschooling. They could go to Community Bible Church Christian Academy and find out about his program because we're putting it out as a model nationally now since it's been around for 30 years. And uh, they'll find something about that also on publicschoolexit.com. And uh, so this is a sample of what churches can do. Uh, and, of course, your church is doing something with the classical Christian school model, Trinity Academy. I can't quite remember the name, but I spent a day there, as I mentioned earlier in the program, visiting and with uh, Reverend Lawrence, and it was just quite impressive. So there so many things like that going on nationally, and of course you've got, we're mentioning two right in your own community, but uh, if people are interested in homeschooling, they could take a look at uh, Community Bible Church, Christian Academy, and I think they're the largest uh, conservative church in the county, a very large church of nearly 3,000 people, conservative, kind of in the Baptist uh, model. So there's a lot of, a lot of things going on, and um, we do seminars, and we suspended them uh, last year, uh, but we would have a, a presentation, and the a board and the myself and two or three others would be on a conference call. It would be like a Zoom call, and families uh, and, and um, parents could just come in, and we'd have an hour, and we would just answer questions and make presentations about how to start homeschooling or how to get a Christian school started in your community. It's West Coast based right now, but I'm on the East Coast. But it's, uh, it's turning out to be a national thing. And that webpage, again, is publicschoolexit.com, and it has quite a bit of information on curriculum, different types of Christian uh, school models. We have something there on the classical model. Of course, that's one of the good models that's being used today uh, nationally. And just how to get started in either homeschooling or how to get started in a, a starting up a K-12 Christian school like your church is participating in there in Buford. Well, no, there's, there's a lot. Yep, there's a lot to say about getting kids out of public schools. A perfect example is look at what's going on in Chicago. Uh, these kids are not being schooled at all, and the public school system is so corrupt. The teachers are ruling the city, refusing to go back. You know, if, if you have teachers there more concerned about themselves than imparting good values and education onto the upcoming generation, there's something wrong with the system, and it's called public schools. This pandemic has opened the eyes of 
millions of parents across this nation to the problems within the public school system because now they're having to homeschool or remote school or do something else or not even school the kids. Unfortunately, there's a uh, generation of kids just falling through the cracks. So it's important someone like you turns around and says there is an alternative. Right, and and we, my wife Gail and I, we've been heralding that message for nearly 25 years. So it's very gravitating, uh, gratifying, excuse me, to see the uh, the changes taking place. And I don't want to say that the COVID uh, crisis is a good thing. It was a very dark uh, chapter, a dark cloud on our culture, because you know many some are getting sick and some are dying. And um, we've got to deal with it, but it's also been kind of like a there's a silver lining in every dark cloud. And as you already have mentioned, what's happened here is uh, last March, <clears throat> suddenly 55 million children were sent home; they were no longer in school. And uh, so it was an indirect blessing for our movement because suddenly millions of families were finding out that hey, we can do this. Uh, you know, it usually does require one parent to be home with the children but we you know and they were already unhappy with public schools but they just wouldn't make the break they wouldn't make the clean break and now they're realizing we can do this and uh, we know uh, polling and uh, research is showing that a minimum of 10 or 15 percent will not return when schools reopen Uh, now we that's happening now their public schools are opening gradually a lot of the Christian schools, they were already uh, open to reopen and, or never did really close. I don't know what uh, Trinity Academy there did in um, in Buford, and I know that the uh, Community Bible Church uh, Christian Academy was, was still operating during all this pandemic. But uh, <clears throat> some are not going to go back. And we, and some research and data says that 25 to 30 percent of the f- public school families that are out now will do not plan to return. So we're in a once in a 100 year opportunity for the great growth of private Christian schools and homeschooling. This is unprecedented. It's a it's a blessing, like I said, a silver lining in a dark cloud. So this is what's caused the emergence of groups like PublicSchoolExit.com. And uh, and there are many, many others that are just springing up all over the country. When I got on the call, right before I got on the call with you today, Annie, I just hung up with a woman in Charleston, Dr. Marie Owens. I just mentioned her for prayer and blessing. And she's planning to start up a Charleston classical school this fall. She's already underway. They've got a web page. Their web page, you could look it up, it's the Charleston Classical School. And it'll be a private Christian school in the classical model using, I think, they're following um, Oaks Academy out of Indianapolis. They've spent some time studying that. And some of the programs are the Charlotte Charlotte Mason uh, curriculum in some places. But it's very Christian. They'll have a creed, a catechism. The uh, teachers will be Christians. They'll have to be Christians. And they're reaching into the minority community. This is an amazing thing. And I just hung up with her, and she's launched it. She's a Ph.D. Uh, in microbiology from the Medical University of South Carolina. 
and uh, taught part-time for a while at the College of Charleston, but she's launching a private Christian school just in your neighborhood, just a few hours away. So maybe the people in Beaufort could give her a hand or pray for her. Marie Owens at uh, Charleston Classical School. And I'm sure you can, I don't have that web page where you can look that up online. But they haven't, haven't got a class yet, but it will be starting in the fall. And she's hoping to start with 40 or 50 students. I don't know mm. how far the grades will go, but they're going to be, they're looking into the minority African-American community. Isn't that wonderful? So this is happening that all is, over the country. Absolutely. And one of the things parents have been learning is what the children have been learning in school. And this is what is one of the main reasons why a lot of them are fleeing. The liberal ideology, the things that are being brought into the classroom by outside agencies and outside influences is rather disturbing. And the indoctrination of now the Black Lives Matter ideals as well as the 1619 Project has us really um, upset, to say the least. Yes, it is. And of course, uh, that's those are primary. Uh, those are some of the primary reasons that people are fleeing. What's happened with the shutdown is a lot of parents have just been not responsible, looking at the curriculum and the things that their children are learning at school. But now that the uh, shutdown has taken place, the children are home, having to learn on the computer, and mom and dad are checking the lessons, and they say, "What? What is this?" And uh, they're getting borderline pornography in their homes. And mom and dad are really upset about it and didn't know their children were getting this at school. And so some of the schools in some of the states uh, have tried to pass laws saying that the mom and dad can't look at the curriculum <laughs> that's coming into their living room uh, with their children. So, this, yeah, that you've hit a very uh, raw nerve there. And then, of course, Black Lives Matter is a, a Marxist uh, group, and it's, that curriculum is being imposed in a lot of our schools. So they're just driving people out, and we hope that they'll drive out millions, millions more over the next several months. Um, the big development in my movement was Dr. Tony Perkins, who is president of the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C., and he's one of the noted... Uh, Christian conservative political leaders in the nation. Family Research Council was founded, I think, by Dr. James Dobson many, many years ago. And it's a very sound Christian public policy group. He himself is a homeschool dad, and I think he's an ordained a Baptist minister, but he's, you know, he, he does his uh, job full-time. <clears throat> and it's a big organization. And it kind of uh, oversees a lot of the family policy groups around the nation. And uh, he came out uh, uh, last week, a week before, urging people to get their kids out of the public schools. There's no more saving the schools. And he says it's time. The name of the article, they can go to Family Research Council and see it. The name of the article is, it's... uh, Time to stop pretending the public schools aren't that bad, because a lot of people just lie to themselves about it. They say, "Oh, they're not good. They're not that bad." That's what's happening in Chicago is not happening in Beaufort County. No, what's happening in Chicago is happening in Beaufort County. It's happening all oh, yeah. over the country. Yeah, matter of fact, here in Beaufort County, we had a series of school superintendents that were so bad, we finally, finally were able to turn over the school board and out oust the uh, school superintendent 
and finally got someone in that is highly competent and extremely good. But it took a number of years and a battle. And I, I keep on telling people, politics starts at home. And it starts with your dog catcher, your school board, your, your local council. And what happens here travels up the food chain. Um, so you got to be aware locally and know exactly what's going on because it affects your taxes. It affects the economy around you. It affects jobs. It affects the quality of life. It affects everything. So you've got to pay attention to what's going on around you. Right. And, of course, we, take, we start off with Exodus Mandate. That was my original group, and public school exit also follows this model that we say the scripture assigns the education of children to the family and the church, not government. They have no ordained uh, jurisdictional right to be educating children, particularly at the K-12 through level. So we, we take a, a theological or biblical position at the start, and we don't believe, uh, we don't really believe in state education. We don't think the state of South Carolina should be educating children at the K-12 through level, that it really belongs to the family and the church. Now, if you're not a Christian, you could set up a private school or have a private association. If we don't want the government uh, indoctrinating our children, and, uh, and that's what they're doing. It's a secular model. A lot of people don't know, Annie, <clears throat> that uh, for the first uh, 220 years of American history, we had no state-sponsored public education. We had local community schools, but they were run by churches. And uh, it was in the 1840s, Horace Mann and the Harvard Unitarians set up the first state-sponsored public schools in Boston, and, and, and they spread through Massachusetts. And then by the turn of the 20th century, it had generally become a, a national model, and the private uh, Christian schools and denominations gradually gave up their Christian schools. I mean, all the education in America for 220 years was done by Christians, home family groups, and churches, and, and there was no state education. So a lot of people don't know that history. It's a very dark history, and it's very much suppressed by the public school people. So we're going circling back around and going back to that original American model, which is this churches and family groups and private associations do all the education and get the kids out. And, uh, and of course, that's what your church has done, and uh, that's what Dr. Carl Brogy's church is doing there at uh, Community Bible Church on uh, Paris Island Parkway there in, in Beaufort. So it's coming back around, and we're glad to be a, a part of it. But we don't think you can fix the public schools because it's a socialistic model. Socialism never works. It always fails. And public education is socialism in education. And we don't want socialism anywhere. And you can't fix socialism. You have to abandon it. So we're trying to get Christians to see that they can't fix these schools, and uh, you have to abandon it. And if we can get enough people out, we think uh, this is very theoretical and hypothetical, but we think if we could grow the numbers in private Christian homeschooling to 25 to 35 percent of the total. Right now we make up about 15 percent, but if we could grow to 25 to 30 percent over the next few years, we might be able to collapse the public school system entirely. 
and it would go out of business, <clears throat> uh, and then churches and other groups would be forced to pick up Christian schooling and, and homeschooling. And every church there in Beaufort should have some kind of program like this. If, they, if they're too small to have a school, they should band with other uh, like-minded churches and form a school together. Uh, that's what your mm-hmm. diocese has done, and, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a new pattern. So we need to get the kids out, and, and we've got to get the preachers bucked up. They're, they're not doing a good job right now as a group, and get them behind Christian schooling or homeschooling. Thank the Lord for uh, Reverend Lawrence and the diocese there in Beaufort and uh, Community Bible Church, Dr. Carl Brogy. Because they get it, and, uh, and and you've got some really good programs there, but it needs to be even stronger in, in Beaufort County. Yeah, well, you've got great articles up on uh, the webpage, but there's also a group that I found involved that really is rather disturbing. It's the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. Well, guys, this is the group that's helping to teach your preschoolers that you're gender fluid. Um, you also have a huge movement to prevent any, any sort of religion in school. Uh, there were recent uh, news items about a girl that was going to say a, a grace over her meal in the lunchroom, and she was chastised and sent to detention. Uh, you have it where uh, if you carry a Bible into school, it's confiscated. So consequently, I think it, Perkins had started that movement where I take the Bible to school day, uh, once a year to make the point that you ca- you cannot prohibit the free expression and thereof as in the First Amendment. But you also have on your website uh, school uh, public school exit plans telling alternatives uh, for public education, and you also have a list of what to avoid. And um, you do not recommend hybrid models with public schools or charter schools. No, we don't. And the reason is because a charter school is a public school. <clears throat> now, what they've done, because the public schools have become so harmful and so deadly and so dangerous that the government is trying to protect its its territory and keep control, they've allowed some people to do charter schools, and they give more freedom and autonomy to the committee that does it. But because they're state, still state-funded, <clears throat> they can't, have explicitly Christian teaching. They can't only hire Christian teachers, which is what your school has done and what Dr. Brogy's, because Dr. Brogy's school, they're all the, the parents, and the uh, church gives supervision and guidance and uh, uh, helps with curriculum. But uh, you can't do that in a charter school, and so they're not technically Christian schools, even though they may have more discipline, and they may not be teaching some of the uh, most egregious um, uh, teachings of the of the hardcore left, which is all through the regular public school system. But after time, uh, that whole poison and that cancer will come into the charter schools eventually because they're controlled by the government. So Christians have got to get smart on this and get out of charter schools as well. I don't support charter schools. Now, I'm, I do admit that in many cases they're better than the regular public schools, but they will be corrupted eventually. Martin Luther said during the Reformation, he says anything <clears throat> that does not have Christ as a foundation in the Bible and, uh, and, and Christian foundations will inevitably become corrupt. 
you know, you've got to have Christ, the Bible, and a creed, a, con- a confession at the foundation of what you're doing. And, and churches have confessions. Why shouldn't schools have confessions? So it's a... Uh, all these uh, viruses that we're talking about that you, 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 you're reminding us of today really are, there's no fixing it. Uh, this has been a problem for uh, public education. is really about 170 years old uh, since I said Horace Mann in the 1840s. And all this waste and de- uh, finally, uh, in our time, washed up on our shores all at one time, and we're just seeing it. But it was always out there in the water, just waiting, and now it's just come upon at once. And we have got to, uh, you know, get the kids out. Well, uh, Dr. Ray Moore, people can find you at the uh, exodusmandate.org as well as right. public school exit.com uh, Lieutenant Colonel it has been a pleasure I look forward to yep. seeing you once again if you stop back down yes. you've you got to make sure you pick well, up the phone yep. and call somebody me in the, somebody in your audience can call me and invite me and I'll come down to speak I'm, I'm down in Beaufort County three or four times a year and it's only a two hour drive so I, 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 don't, I can't do that in California but I can come to Beaufort and I've, you know, I've met you before <laughs> and uh, so if anybody wants me they can go to Exodus mandate.org and contact us. We have books there and things that they can order on that page. But if they're interested in schooling and, you know, I'm I'm working with two things. Publicschoolexit.com is very important for the church or somebody there who wants to start homeschooling or a Christian school. And Dr. Brogy's program is on that webpage too. Well, God bless you and thank you for the hard work you do, sir. Thank you for having me on, and uh, bring me back uh, in six months. I'll be happy to come back. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll do it. Take care. Thank All you. Right, check it out, publicschoolexit.com and the org. And we're going to bring on our bashful friend that has returned again. He, he was a bad boy last week, so I'll chastise him, <laughs> Dr. Bruce Hartman. Good afternoon, Dr. Bruce. Hi, Annie. Thank you for your patience. How you doing? <laughs> no problem, no problem. I have to laugh because every this is not the first time we've done it to me. But you, you screen your phone calls like I do. If I don't know the number calling me, I'm not going to pick up. So I don't blame you because I do the very same thing. Well, well, actually, if I if I have my phone set up that if I don't have the phone number in, it blocks the call because Annie, I have to tell you this this is really getting bad. I probably get 10 spam calls a day now. Oh, you know, help. I get the text. I get the text. Oh, <laughs> I've started getting those too, Andy. You know, it's it's amazing that our country, you know, as sophisticated as we are, we can't figure this out. And uh, because I know it's not just you and I, all my friends are having the exact same problem. Yeah, it's strange because I am getting like 10 calls a day and the number will be like a local number and I'll pick it up and there's no one on the other end. So I'm wondering, is this some new way that someone's making money off of calling phones? I'm wondering if if there's... Yes, Andy, so what that is, is they have these computers that are automatically dialing, dialing numbers sequentially. And as soon as they hit, as soon as you pick up the phone, even if you decline it, it recognizes it as a um, 
it recognizes a live phone number. And then if that number is sold out on the dark web to advertisers later on, but they, they, the robot is constantly prowling. And the reason why it's your local number that's doing it, it's the same as my number. Any number that comes out of New York um, is usually a robot. And I can, I can almost tell them now, you know, 646 or 317 or something like that. I know that it's a robot. But th- it's insidious. And I'm just shocked that you consider the, uh, how powerful Verizon is in, a, in our government that they can't put an end to this because this has become very destructive, I think to pro- productivity for a lot of people. It's to the point where I don't even pick up the phone anymore. If I see it, it's either my husband or my mother's nurse or my husband or my mother's therapist. Yeah, I've got dueling walkers in my house right now. Um, oh I'll pick up the phone. So uh, otherwise, I have to the point where I just will not even pick up and answer the phone. And when I do, and it is someone hawking something, I'm not very polite, to say the least. And my mother's kind of like getting accustomed to that. Uh, she's getting accustomed to the dark side of Annie. But anyway, uh, we just had uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Ray Moore with us talking about the getting kids out of public school and into more Christian faith-based homeschooling or church-based schooling. And I think this is an important part of, I think, recapturing our nation. What's your thoughts on that? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the, the interesting things is that they've, they've discovered that, and, and you can see it in the facts, that there has been no change in covid whether the schools open or closed. And the, and the way you can see this, by the way, is if you look at the cases per million in Florida, which has essentially been open most of the, most of the way, versus you look at it in, um, say, Arlington, Virginia, or New York, where they've totally shut down the schools in certain communities, their cases per million are actually higher, even though they've been far more restrictive. So w- w- this, this notion... Um, is really being driven by unions, and unions are the problem in our school system. They hire these administrators who walk the hallways and try to tell the teachers how to do their job. They, uh, any type of health concern, instead of really thinking about it, they see it as a as a as a way to as a way to get people to get time off. They're not really thinking about the children. What you will find in a Christian school is you'll find teachers very committed to the children, and also to our Lord and Savior. So I'm totally for this. Oh, absolutely. And maybe in a way this pandemic has will show in the end it's a blessing to our kids because now more parents are seeing what is being taught to the child. And they're going to right. turn around and become more active in the education system. And as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Moore was saying, he feels – they're saying a minimum of 10% of these public school families will not return. He's thinking it's closer to 30%. And if it's that high, we may see the collapse of our public school system. Well, I don't know if we'll ever see the collapse of it, but we will see, I think, what his estimate somewhere between 10 and 30. You know, my very, very uninformed survey of friends that I know with kids would tell you the same thing. Um, I have my daughter, as a matter of fact, who lives in Arlington, it took her son, my grandson, over to uh, take a test 
and they're going to put uh, Luke into a private school for the very reasons you just said. And I've always said the tax dollars should follow the student. The student should not follow the tax dollar. So don't tell me because I'm in this neighborhood, I must go to this specific public school. Let me find the one that I feel is best for my child, and my tax dollars will go with that child, not the child to the tax. Right. Yeah, and I think I think um, I don't know if we're quite at that point, but you, I, I do I do think that there's going to be some type of revolt um, from parents that are sending their children to school and not getting their tax dollars um, spent wisely on them. There are some communities where two thirds of your tax dollars don't go to your school system; they go to a school system that's away from your school. So in other words, an area that is um, in a, maybe another county or another school district is collecting, and they do this in New Jersey and Missouri, they take some of your tax dollars that were designated to go to your school system and give it to another school system without the residents knowing. No, the, the funny part is they collect our tax dollars here locally. It goes through the state, from the state up to the federal then the federal turns around and reallocates those tax dollars, as you said, to different areas, maybe and 100% does not come back down to you. You may get anywhere from 10% to 90%, depending upon who is in power in D.C. And then once it comes yeah. back to the state, the state turns around and says, well, this much tax dollars are going here, but I'm going to allocate it to this area and that area. So if you're lucky, if you get a penny on the dollar back, you're doing good. And, you know, it's, what's shocking, Annie, is how many people don't know what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I don't have kids in school, so why should I care? Right? <laughs> well, it's it's any time the federal. I mean, I love Ronald Reagan's comment: uh, "Be very scared when somebody says I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help you." You know, any time the federal government does something this intricate, you you can be sure of one thing: it's not going to go well. Look at the COVID vac the COVID vaccine rollout. That's been uh, just a terrible, uh, terribly inefficient exercise. You know, I have to laugh. As I said, you know, I don't have kids in school, so why should I care? Well, you're going to care when you get your property tax bill in. And here in South Carolina, property tax will include any business, their merchandise, their equipment, their structure. So when you go into a business, you're paying additional property tax with their goods and services. Uh, here, even motor vehicles and boats and boat motors are property tax, mm -hmm. which goes to the school district. You know, every right. everything you do in your neighborhood involves some form of your school tax, whether through it's a millage rate or an outright tax. So you're paying taxes for your school district. So, yes, you should be aware of what's going on with your school district and what's coming out of your school district, the quality of the education coming out, which is why I think it's something like what Dr. Moore, uh, or sorry, Lieutenant Colonel Moore is doing with the exit mandate and the public school exit and what you do through your website and your various books. 
Yes, that's. I mean, that's a very good point, and I think uh, that it's so confusing for the average taxpayer. We need Pete Colonel Moore um, leading that voice. Plus, he's a man. He's a man whose voice you can trust, and you know it's sincere. Um, and I think that's the biggest problem. This is so confusing. It's hard for people to figure out what you've just said. What you've just said. Well, now I'm going to switch the subject a little bit um, because there seems to be a new version of Roman Catholicism uh, floating around in the air, and lo and behold, its perfect model is President Joe Biden. <laughs> well, it's it's more of a political statement than it is a theological statement because I think if you go back not that far in the past and you think about Amy Coney Barrett, who was a Catholic, and she was part of the Handmaiden um, group, which they branded as a, a sinister cult. Um, and, you know, she was, that was the big attack on her, was that she was a Catholic, and she was only going to do what the Catholic Church told her. Now we have a Catholic president, and is a Democrat, and what has mainstream, what has the mainstream news media done? They've exalted him because he goes to church on Sunday. And so it's, to me, it's more of a political statement. And I recently read in the New York Times that he, they said in the last 50 years, he's the most religious president. Well, that's a pretty high bar to get to. When you got Jimmy Carter, uh, and you know Jimmy Carter's history, you got Jimmy Carter, you have uh, George Bush Jr., certainly George Bush Sr. as well. And you had Donald, Donald Trump, who probably as a president, did more to fight for religious freedoms than any one of the presidents that I just named. Well, Ronald Reagan, uh, openly, and he was devout yeah. for every single evening he would do his prayers. And oh, have we forgotten the first Catholic president, John F. Kennedy, a Democrat? And I don't think his well, Catholicism would match what Joe Biden's Catholicism is, because I do remember the arguments when he was running for president. Oh, my goodness, you can't vote for him because then the Pope is going to be in the White House. Do you remember those arguments? I, I do. The reason why I didn't include JFK was the, the New York Times article um, that's attributing Joe Biden as being the most religious president in 50 years is unfortunately it's been 60 years since um, Kennedy was president. But you're certainly right. Um, that's a different form of Catholicism than the pro-abortion stance that Joe, Joe Biden has. Or the gender fluidity that he also yes. supports. And we're yes. seeing some crazy – and these poor girls up in Connecticut, matter of fact, we spoke about these two young ladies in previous shows, and the cost that they are bearing for political correctness. And people don't understand, oh, what does it matter? It's just high school sports. Well, it then translates into whether or not they get a scholarship to go into college because now these boys are stealing all the awards because the – physiology of the male anatomy is definitely different from the female and you can do as much surgery as you want lo and behold you're dead and gone a thousand years ago from now you do the dna it's going to say boy or girl it don't matter but they are built differently and that's the way the good lord intended it but now they lose their scholarships going into college that then commutes to whether or not they go into any sort of professional sports whether or not they can at that point 
So it affects them for the rest of their lives. Their ability to earn, their ability to enter a segment of society which they feel they can compete in, it affects every aspect of their lives, but it's all for political correctness. How dare you? Yeah. And, and, and that's, you've identified the problem with, with identity politics. Identity politics um, takes a particular class and puts them above the majority. So in other words, we certainly can understand the position of these boys, but we can't, we can't accept the loss that's incurred, which is your point, incurred by those that are being affected. You know, this past summer, Facebook banned me, um, suspended me, because I wrote, seek Jesus, not revenge. And so when I called them to talk to them about it, they said, well, somebody was offended because you used the word Jesus on your Facebook post. Well, when I pointed out to them that uh, 90% of Americans believe in God and 70% of Americans are Christian, what about their rights to hear messages like that? And that's the problem when we deal with identity, politics, and political correctness. We don't worry about the people's toes that we step on. We only worry about the one-off person, and you can't run a country that way. Well, I would have pointed out to them, too, oh, by the way, Jesus is not a word. It is a name. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I couldn't even get that right. <laughs> well, yeah. well, and that's the problem we have with social media, too. Um, you know, for, for instance, on YouTube now, you can't promote or be part of an algorithm if you use the word COVID riots or um, COVID riots or I forget what the other thing, anything that we related to the January 6th incident. Well, what if you're praying for, what if you're on uh, doing a YouTube video and you're praying for the people that are affected by COVID? Well, that's not going to get dispersed because that's what Google's decided through YouTube. And we as a country, we're losing our identity because of this insaneness. And we're also losing our, our rights and, and freedoms. You know, we're seeing it chipped away a little bit by little bit by little bit. And, you know, you had that one website parlor that still is not back up yet uh, being banned because it was com being competitive to Facebook and Amazon and Google. Now, how dare they exercise their ability to have free speech. Only what we say is free speech is allowed to be free speech. But that's the single most dangerous thing that's happening in America today. And let's go back to Trump being banned on Twitter. A number of, uh, number of leaders, including people that didn't really get along well with Trump, have criticized that decision by Twitter and by the other social media companies for doing that, Angela Merkel being one of them. What's, what's ironic about on Twitter, they've banned Trump. If you type in hashtag kill Trump, you'll find nine users that have that as their, um, their handle. How is that different than what some of the stuff that Trump said? But here's the, the biggest irony. The, one of the countries that despises us the most is Iran. And their leader, the supreme leader, that's the official title, uh, the supreme leader, has his Twitter account there. And he's not banned. 
So I'll tell you, I, 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 I went through some old YouTube messages that I got on my email, and I says, well, I haven't seen where did I don't know where they were in cyberspace somewhere, and some of them were two years old. So I started going through them, and almost every last one of them was a YouTube video of this show that was pulled. And I had no idea. So, yeah, I, 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 I'm up there with you. <laughs> I'm right there with you. And, and, it's, and re, the religious aspect is, um, is really the one that's being attacked the most. Because, for instance, the, this video that I was talking about was one of my videos. It's called Two Men in Jesus. And every Saturday morning, me and this uh, fellow that I know, a wonderful person, is named Pastor Lou. We do a video and we post it on YouTube. And this past, not this past week, but the previous week, we had been praying for the people who are suffering with COVID. And it was banned and shut down on uh, YouTube. It's insanity out there. And I should mention that. I should mention on your website, which is your name, brucelhartman.com, people can uh, catch your podcast as well as your blog and also learn about all the fantastic books you have out there. The latest one that came out this year, uh, for this year, is Spend a Year with Jesus, a Christian devotional for 2021. Uh, Your first book, which was Jesus and Company, and the one I love the best is Your Faith Has Made You Well. So you've got three books out there. Yeah, and I have two two coming, Annie. You're gonna the the next one is called Jesus is Everything, which is kind of ironic because Jesus is everything, but it's a book about that. And then I'm starting this Bible series um, of the great characters of the Bible, and the one I just finished up and sent over to the editor is about Gideon and the story of Gideon, and um, it's an interesting study in faith, but it's also a great adventure story. Mm. The Great Tales of the Bible. I have been doing the Bible a day, and you know, sometimes I fall a few days behind, so I'll be up there like about two or three in the morning <laughs> catching up. Uh, <laughs> but it is, it is the greatest book ever written in the world, uh, and more people should start delving into it instead of having something like this uh, queen of a uh, king of queens star, Leia Remini, who is letting her her 16-year-old daughter teach her how to be woke. Instead of having the parent being the teacher, we have now got the world so turned upside down, the kids are telling us how to be woke. That is a frightening not thing. In, not in this house. <laughs> not problem, in your home. No, no. The, the, the problem with parenting is you are in charge and you are responsible. And if we start abdicating our responsibilities, practically what you're doing is you're telling a less experienced person to tell you as a more experienced person what to do. Now, I'm not saying all parents are good, but I do know even with my daughters in their late 20s and 30s, when I speak to them, I always remember I'm the father. It doesn't mean I'm mean or rough to them, but I'm always looking out for their best interest and never being anything other than a father. Yeah, that's that's important. That's important. You know, as I said, I have my 89, she'll be 89 this July 4th, 89-year-old uh, mom with me. So, you know, she does, when she does speak, I do listen. 
doesn't mean she's right 100% of the time. And then I'd have to have right. a conversation with her so that she gets to see my side and she understands where I'm coming from. And 99% of the time we agree. Once in a while we'll have a disagreement, but we'll talk. And that's what a parent should do. It shouldn't be just Absolutely. completely closed minded opened, but at least being able to listen to the child, to listen to their side, and then explain why you feel you're right or why you may find a compromise. But that's what life is supposed to be about, and this is not what our society or the people in power want us. They want us to be dictated to so that they can then control us, and if we are beholden to the powers that be, be it government or be it the latest, greatest coming out of Hollywood, we will then worship at their altar instead of where we truly should be working, at the altar of God. You're 100% right about that. Um, and what you had said was, by the way, perfect parenting. You know, you say your piece, you are the leader. But as a leader, a good leader, you have to be open to other people's points of view, not controlled by them, but open to them. A problem we have too much. They, parenting has become the point where um, i got to go to work or I'm going to be watching the TV shows while I collect my welfare. Uh, the government, I'm going to send the kids to school. The government will take care of them. And then there's after-school activities, so I don't have to worry about them. Come home, we give them something to eat, McDonald's, take out whatever, and shove them to bed, to the TV, to the computer, whatever. And parents are gotten, no, gotten I, these. Yeah, if, if, I think abdicated, and I think that's probably the best word. Um, you know, and again, I, I think this gets us back to the Christian schools. If, you know, Christian schools will keep the parents involved and will insist on being a good father and being a good mother. Now, and I think that's one thing this pandemic has shown, that the parents do need to take control back, and responsible parents are seeing the need. And where things like what you do uh, with your podcast, your website, your books, things that uh, the Exodus Mandate or the public school exit programs do. And there is a growing, growing tend to pull kids out of public school. And it's a good thing. We've got a generation of kids that have grown up believing socialism and communism is good. God is bad. Instead, we're going to bring a generation up behind them and say, uh, wait a minute, Grandpa, <laughs> I think God's a good thing here. <laughs> and move over, Grandpa, because now we're taking over. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, that's, but here's the one thing I always remember about every societal problem. God's always in charge. Mm -hmm. Maybe it doesn't appear like that, but in the end, God always wins. Isn't that what Revelation tells us? Yes, I was actually counseling a person this morning about about God and Jesus, and I said to them, you have to always remember, who is the Alpha and who is the Omega? Everything in between is controlled by Jesus. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Curtis. Dr. Hartman, um, we are facing a midterm coming up in two years, and I know a lot of people are frustrated about what happened um, during the presidential election. And I, I'm always one who tells them to keep the faith and keep the fight going because we do have um, opportunity to um, 
to checkmate the, the Democrats um, in Congress if we get enough people in the House and um, in the Senate. They can um, put forth all they want, but if we can regain the majority, then we can, like I said, checkmate it. But you have people out there who feel that, well, they cheated before. What's going to stop them from cheating again? And they just don't really seem to have a lot of hope and faith. What would you tell these these same people? Well, I, I would with two things. I would go back to what you said that um, always have faith. You, you have to live your life that way, Curtis, and that's um, that's as good a statement as anybody could make. The second thing that I see is they exposed themselves with this last election and basically played their hand. So I don't think we should st- stop voting as we feel like we should vote. And I don't think we shouldn't vote because we believe that some people cheated. We have to do it more. But now what we have to do is watch closer and make sure they know we're watching. Because a lot of the stuff like the 40-footers that were in Long Island and all of a sudden are rolling into Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with votes, that's the type of stuff that's, you know, people said there was no substance to it. There was a lot of substance to it. Um, and that's the type of stuff I think that the Republican Party be far more aware of the game plan next time than they were this time. And I think to a certain extent, uh, they knew this stuff was going on, but they weren't really armed for it. But that doesn't mean we as voters should stop voting. That is true. That is very true. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, my attention was just distracted uh anyway um we do have to stay aware and be aware of what is going on out there uh and we have to stay active we have to stay knowledgeable and active and we have to keep on our elected officials we've seen them for what they are and we're finding also out there right now there's a lot of um voter regret that people are losing their Mm. job thinking that hey joe biden he's going to better paycheck. Uh, we're going to get $15 an hour. We're in, going to increase the cost of doing business by 50%. So I'm going to get double my salary. Well, guess what, dude? You're either going to get fired or get being put to part-time. Um, there yeah. is our re- repercussions rolling within the first week of his presidency, and there is voter regret. Well, Dr. Bruce, it is always a pleasure to have you on the phone with us. Uh, put my phone number of the show here into your phone. Yeah, I'm going to tell tell AJ, tell my publicist (laughs) to make sure we know what the phone number is so that my phone will be able to answer it. So, uh, but thank you for your patience. Really appreciate it. Well, next time, if you don't hear us call you, you call us. (laughs) I will. And I have your number now. Oh, man, you've got my number, baby doll. you got my number. Your website is your name, brucelhartman.com. You've got three fantastic books out there. Spend a Year with Jesus, a Christian devotional for 2021. Jesus and Company, which was your first book, Connecting the Lessons of the Gospel with Today's Business World. And the one I love is Your Faith Has Made You Well. God bless you, Bruce. All right, bless you as well. And have a blessed day to Curtis as well. Thank you. Thank you. Check them out.
Bruce L. Hartman. And we've got our final victim up in the queue. He is a columnist uh, for the the Daily Signal, get by Keith and Straight, uh, which is hosted by the Heritage Foundation at heritage.org. Welcome aboard, Doug Blair. Good afternoon, Doug. How are you today? Uh, good afternoon. How are you? I, I'm, I guess I'm proud to be a final victim. <laughs> and, yeah, we hooked up on LinkedIn, too. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm really the glutton for punishment. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny because when I – get my guests lined up. I don't always look to see, you know, on a specific topic and line everyone up along that, that vein. But the good Lord has a way of, you know, pulling a fast one on me. And most of all my uh, uh, victims today have been talking about education. And you also come from a background of education. I do. I do. I, actually, education is... Um, something you know i may not write about it or talk about it as much as i should but really we're nothing without it now and we're losing a whole generation of kids to indoctrination and we're seeing the rise of antifa uh, the rise of support of socialism and socialistic ideals and the voting for openly socialistic communist candidates into government office and it's all because of what started in the 60s in our education system. Little bit by little bit, they started to chip away, and parents have not been paying attention. And now it's fully exploded, and only now because of the pandemic and the kids being locked in at home with the parents are they finally waking up and smelling the coffee. We've got a whole new waking up of America here. Well, you know, I've, I've kind of changed on oh, – excuse me. I've kind of changed a little bit on that. I, I think um, attacking edu- the education system as, as it is now doesn't really work or doesn't really serve much of a purpose. Well, how do you mean? Well, you, you know, we have a whole generation of kids. What happened was you had a massive generation of kids in the 80s and I would say probably starts in the late 70s that went to college. And colleges don't teach any different than they did back in the 40s and 50s, um, that there's really no such thing as a liberal bias in college. And I've realized that, you know, as as, these, as you, right. know, you this, have much. Hang on a second. Hello? This cannot be Doug Blair. This cannot be my guest, yes. Doug Blair. I, I do believe this is someone that is a troll because obviously you are not the person talking that wrote the uh, article. I'm a former teacher. Here, your children are getting indoctrinated by yeah. leftist ideology. No, no, that, you are no, not. This is me. Heck no, this the is one. me. No, no, this is me. No, I, Hello? I, I don't believe. Hang on a second. All right, uh, this is Southern Sense. To whom am I speaking? Hi, this is Doug Blair. Hello. All right, I, I kind of figured I had a troll here, someone pretending to be you. Now, this is the second time that someone's called in pretending to be my guest, and they were not. So, good afternoon. You are the one that works for the Daily I, Signal, correct? I am the one who works for the Daily Signal. I, I was very confused. And I was like, huh, that's not my voice. No, the second you said there, there's no leftist ideology in education, I knew I got myself the troll. <laughs> so, you, yes, you should feel honored. 
I should, I guess I should be, should be glad that somebody thinks that I'm important enough to, to try to copy. So I I guess I'll take that win. (laughs) Oh, as I was, what you missed is that I was saying that the good Lord has a way of directing my show in a certain way because every single guest we've been talking about had to do something with education and bringing Mm -hmm. parents more involved, bring it more centered to where our founding principles are and our faith-based education systems are heading towards. And this is what you write about in your articles and how the left has inseparably been indoctrinating our kids. Yeah, no. So you're, you're hitting on a, a topic that I find to be really, really important, and that's education. So I worked in education for four years, and I kind of saw firsthand how uh, the left really has started to change education from a form of learning about one's country and learning about one's history to sort of new speak and, and uh, the sort of new dogma of the left at the moment. So I think we can all agree that a parent has the right to teach their kid the values that they want and then avoid those values that they don't want. Um, parents should be given the right to, cha- to, to, to raise their child with traditional Christian values if that's what they want to do. But you can't just send your kid to school anymore and say, hey, little Johnny, you're going to learn what it means to be a good American. No, the teachers are going to start putting their own anti-American values in their lesson plans. And it's kind of scary because now more than ever, parents really need to be aware of what their children are learning in the classroom because it's, again, not what they were supposed to be learning like back in the day. Well, you know, prior to the pandemic um, breaking out, we were addressing some of the issues and several years ago, we saw the creeping of teaching Islam and having the kids recite the Shahada in the classroom. At that time also, they were teaching more explicitly sex, sexual education. And we thought, you know, this was horrific, it's, it's terrible, but it was the opening of the door back in the late 60s, early 70s, where we said, oh, we have to have health ed. Health ed then became sex ed. And then the door just kept on opening and opening and opening, little bit by little bit, and suddenly we're acting as if we got caught unawares. I mean, you're, you're, I don't know about all of that. I'm a, I'm a little young, but I mean, one of the things that you're, you're really hitting on is that it is something that we kind of were caught uh, looking the other direction where all of a sudden you wake up and the lessons and the, the, the history and the things that you were taught are no longer being taught in schools. And I can give you an example of that. So one of the, the things I mentioned in my piece is uh, a little girl that I was working with, she was about 10 years old. And she was asking me for help with the school project. And the project was uh, name some famous Brits, name some famous people from England. And I gave her some of the very stereotypical ones. I gave her Shakespeare. I gave her Queen Elizabeth, Queen Victoria, um, you know, King Arthur, mythical, mythical figure there. And then I said Winston Churchill. And I think we can all agree that Winston Churchill was a really great man. Not perfect, but a very good man. And she turns to me and without blinking an eye says, I don't want to put in Winston Churchill he was racist and he didn't think women should vote. And it's just like, that's not what a 10 year old is thinking. That's very clearly what she's been told to say. It's very clearly what she's been taught. And I think that's the scariest thing that it's, it's becoming so commonplace that that's what children are learning, that that's kind of what all they're exposed to. Nobody, nobody's going to learn about Winston Churchill's other good accomplishments. Well, the fact a 10 year old even knew who Winston Churchill was, and then to come up with that, that has to be indoctrination using those words. It, it, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree that 
It's, it's, there's, there's one thing to say that a person is flawed. I think we're all flawed. You know, there's, there's nobody on, on earth that is a perfect human being. But what we should be doing instead of saying, well, if this person is flawed in the way that I dislike, they'll get thrown in the trash from this history. What you should be saying is, hey, let's learn about all of the intricacies of what makes this person a good person, why we celebrate them instead of saying, you know, they're a bad person. Winston Churchill was not perfect, but Winston Churchill saved the West from the Nazis in World War II. That's, that, that, that is what he did. And you can acknowledge his faults and you can acknowledge how he was an important person. Well, what frightens me also is the outside influences coming into our public education system. Um, you have Castle now that is teaching you emotional education and bringing in to pre-kindergarten kids, you know, the idea of gender fluidity. Uh, you have now Black Lives Matter pushing the 1619 Project. Our founding fathers were racist and every last one slaveholders. They didn't believe in every man being equal. Um, and it just goes on and on from there. Instead of recognizing that our founding fathers put into the Constitution the mechanisms that led to the freedom of slaves. And this was a fight they had yeah. as, they, as they wrote the Constitution. Absolutely. No, I, I, like I said, you can definitely acknowledge that they had flaws. The, the founding fathers held slaves. That is a fact. But the Constitution was set up in such a way that you know they inevitably believed that slavery was was going to go away. Um, you, you, you mentioned eighteen or the 1619 project. We actually did some work at Heritage on um, fighting back against the 1619 project and critical race theory. So uh, we had an episode of a podcast called Heritage Explained where we interviewed uh, Jarrett Stepman, who's been doing research on this for a very very long time. And Loudoun County, Virginia had a really big issue recently where they were going to start trying to force members of the school, uh, teachers and, and the, the school board, to basically only accept certain race-based uh, criteria. And if you were to disagree with that criteria, you would be fired. And this was not just something that they would do at, on school grounds. It was something that would extend into uh, your after-school activity. So if you were to, on social media, for example, say something that was against uh, critical race theory or these new race-based policies that the school board had proposed, there would be consequences. And so we are really seeing that this is not something that is now kind of localized. It is now spreading throughout the country, and it's getting to a point where school boards are now forcing teachers to do it even in their own free time, which is, to me, much more frightening than just in the, in the classroom. Now it's, it's two places at once. Well, we're also seeing various companies throughout the nation uh, re-educating the uh, employees about white privilege and things like that. It, it's gone into the corporate world. It's into the social network. Um, you have people publicly shamed, losing their jobs because of these, these ideals that have been creeping into our society, first into our schools and now throughout the rest of it. And it's a frightening thing. Yeah, 100% agree. Well, you know, there's various ways that they've been trying to do this indoctrination with our kids. And one of the things is, and I've, I said this a long time ago, through TV, through the cartoons, through the Internet that the, ki the videos kids are watching on there, that parents are not supervising and are unaware of what is being shown. Um, some of it is very, very explicit. They, we don't have yeah. kids anymore. We have many adults. 
Yeah, no, you're 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 definitely hitting on a topic that is is also really important to acknowledge. Like one of the things that a lot of parents think is, oh, this is you know there are there are teachers that are teaching anti-American content, but it's not just uh, the education sphere anymore. It's also the media landscape. So I also wrote a piece on Cartoon Network. And Cartoon Network, when I was growing up uh, as a kid in the the mid '90s, late '90s, uh, they aired cartoons. And it was entertainment. You basically sat your kid in front of the TV and you expected your child to be entertained. Uh, what we're seeing now is that Cartoon Network has gone woke, right? So they're releasing content that is very much uh, targeted towards a very, a very certain demographic. And it's very much about kind of teaching children the, the right way to think. And I put right into uh, between quotation marks. So one of these shows that I, I want to highlight is Steven Universe. And um, Steven Universe basically is a show about a young boy who goes on his, his he goes on adventures with his, his friends who are like aliens. And the show is very popular with a lot of LGBT organizations because it's uh, full of these references to queer content, gay content, non-binary content. So I have a quote here from them, which is a, a very uh, LGBT focused magazine. The quote goes, uh, Steven Universe may stand as the most progressive cartoon on TV in terms of queer representation. Uh, Steven, for example, is surrounded entirely by female superheroes and often mirrors their feminine behavior. Even more, one of them is a fusion between two female characters who are in love, and another used to be in love with Steven's mom. The show has featured women in tuxedos, boys in dresses, and a non-binary person in whatever clothing they want, and all of it is celebrated. Now, here's the thing it really doesn't matter whether or not this is something you are pro or against. It is just the, the kind of striking contrast between the content that Cartoon Network used to air when I was a child, like Pokemon, for example, and this new content that is very much guided towards the message comes first and the cartoon comes second. There is now a very distinct uh, attempt to indoctrinate or to, to uh, teach children these things, whether or not the parents want to be involved in that. The the worst part is these kids, their minds are malleable. And the New England Journal of Medicine had a uh, printed a, um, oh, I'm, I just had a major brain fart. Uh, not a study, uh, I forget what the term is, uh, Jesus, uh, a report that the human brain sexually is not fully developed until the, approximately the age of 27. So kids growing up are always going to question your, their body. Their bodies are changing constantly, which makes them question. So if they have any questions about their own ego, their own identity, it's not necessarily gender. It's whether or not they're going to be accepted socially, if, if people like them, if their parents like them, if their friends like them. Uh, if they don't like them, maybe there's something wrong with me. Uh, maybe my body's wrong, or maybe I, I look funny, or maybe I talk funny. The kids growing up always will question their identity, but they become solidly identified as fully male, fully female, fully heterosexual by the time they're between 16 to 18. So if you start getting them to double question, you're going to have one heck of a confused, messed up adult. I, mean, I, that, I, I have not heard of this study, but it does sound like a very interesting thing to, to read. I, I think the, the larger issue, too, is it's not just the sexuality stuff and it's not just the, the, um, you know, the, the kind of agenda there. It's also the issue with some of the critical race theory stuff. So going back to what we were talking about before, 
Um, it's it's very much propaganda in that direction. So Cartoon Network again, uh, they they aired this ad um, about anti-racism. And now when you hear the term anti-racism, you think, oh, you know, I'm an anti-racist. I don't like racism. You know, most normal human beings aren't racist. Um, but you look at this ad, and it basically is parroting a historical content. So the ad begins with one of these characters from Steven Universe uh, talking about. Uh, the light bulb, and they, they, this character asked the class, who invented the light bulb? And of course, the response would be Thomas Edison, because he invented the light bulb. This character proceeds to get very angry and say, no, 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 no. Uh, Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb. Instead, it was a black inventor, Louis Latimer. Uh, Louis Latimer was a, a genius, a very smart man. He was um, very influential in the improvement of the light bulb, but he didn't invent it. Even CNN, which is no right-leaning source, admitted that Louis Latimer did not invent the light bulb. But the problem that we see here is the Cartoon Network has now basically decided that cartoons are not for entertainment. Cartoons are for messaging. Cartoons are for spreading the word, right? So the sexuality and the, the Steven Universe issue is one thing. We have the gender identity stuff, but then we also have the anti-racism thing. And that's the biggest concern, is that cartoons and education are no longer messaging uh, positive values are messaging leftist talking points. Nor are they educating. What happened to education? We've got kids that can't even read or write coming out of high school and entering into college and, oh, gee whiz, it's going to be college tuition paid by the taxpayer and Joe Biden's going to probably forgive all these student loans. So, hey, you, you guys are paying for these dummies that we're churning out here. Yeah, it, it is... It, mm. Snowballs into a situation where we're going to have a segment of society entering into adulthood that are ill-equipped to handle adulthood. Yeah, no, we, we when we don't teach our children these kind of fundamental things, these values that they need to, to learn to grow up, we we are doing them a disservice. I'll I'll go back to uh, one of the things that I learned a lot from from an educational card, I mean educational in in the kind of looser sense of the word. Pokemon. When I was a kid, I watched that quite a bit. And I mentioned this in my piece that there wasn't this idea that it was just mindless entertainment. There were morals to the story. So I remember very clearly there was an episode where the main character had to say goodbye to one of his Pokemon. And as a six-year-old, this was the saddest thing I'd ever seen in my life. I was, you know, crying. But it was an important lesson. The idea that sometimes people you care about and people you love go away. And you have to be able to accept that. That's a really fundamental lesson for a, a young child to learn. You need to learn to, to say goodbye. But that's a really far cry from what now is like, hey, you know, sexuality and gender and all of that stuff as a, as a six-year-old. That's, it's, it's very different. It's no longer educational tools. It's very much a propaganda tool. Well, that, that it is. Now, one of the other articles I wanted to mention that you wrote was, was a really uplifting one uh, titled Leading by Example, Barstool Fund Steps Up and Saves Small Businesses. And I was watching um, one of the videos that you had put up there. I was crying. I was crying. They're wonderful, that right? Out of all this disaster, Americans will always step up to the plate one way or another, and the Barstool Boys are really phenomenal. Yeah, no, Barstool Sports and the Barstool Fund have been doing the Lord's work here. I mean, I mean, the, these smaller businesses that are 
really facing a, a genuine crisis at the moment. I don't, I don't think it's, it's a, an overstatement to say that we're in crisis mode right now with the, the pandemic and uh, all of these small businesses that are unable to open. Uh, this crisis is, is really threatening lives and livelihoods here. We're, we're really concerned about our families, our neighbors, our friends, uh, these local businesses that we're used to patronize, and we're seeing that the government hasn't stepped up to the plate. It's governments at all levels, that's state, local, federal, are, are really hampering businesses' abilities to stay afloat. Um, private charities like the Barstool Fund are basically providing a lifeline from government interference that is basically allow, is causing these businesses to have to close. So when I look at the Barstool Fund, I see a private citizen who, who, who looks outside his window, sees suffering businesses and says, what can I do to help? And one of the, the, the magical things about this thing is it's all, it's all privately funded. So it's donors at uh, every level. There are some larger donors, of course, like there's celebrities, but a lot of it is grassroots. So it's, it's people who are seeing their own local businesses and say, you know what, I can chip in $20. And they're the ones who are saying, I want my business down the street to survive. I want to see my, my neighbors and, and my friends succeed. Uh, so you know, I, I will step up. And I think that it's, it's a really great message and it, it really should inspire everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. It is. And, you know, you do see people locally, you know, stepping up. If you have someone that's shut in, people are going over and, and bringing them meals. Um, I had someone recently ask me, what can I do? And I said, contact your local church. If you're shut in at home, you can still do something. You contact your local church or your local community center and ask if you can do some sort of thing like a prayer ministry. You pick up the phone, you call someone else who's shut in, have a conversation, have a prayer, you know, see if that they're okay. You know, even if you are self-quarantined, you can still do something to help your fellow man and to connect with your fellow man. Because one of the things are, we are social creatures. We need contact with other individuals. We crave it. Um, so I, I, there's things we can do out there. Absolutely. And, and here's the thing though. So we, we definitely can do that, but this is an issue that is, is larger than just one private charity, right? I mean, the Barstool Fund is doing really, it's doing God's work, but we're basically at the point now where the Barstool Fund can't handle it. There are so many small businesses that need the help. What we really need is good economic policy. And regardless of whether you're in a crisis or not, good economic policy doesn't change. So we're looking at some of the, the proposals coming out of the, the administration that are not ideal. Um, one of the big ones is the non-targeted checks. So we're looking at checks that are just going to kind of go out to everyone. Sounds good, but non-targeted checks to everybody doesn't really help those who are hit the hardest from this. So a lot of Americans don't need the checks. So a waitress in New York who, who relies on going into her business and going into her restaurant to earn a living, she needs that. She needs that, right? She, she needs the help. But an accountant who is, you know, working from home and doesn't have any changes and, and literally only changes to a computer, he doesn't need it. So we, we, what we need is, is good economic policy. We need economic policy that targets those who need the help. Absolutely. And we also don't need the $15 an hour wage because that in itself will kill jobs. If the business doesn't automate, they will cut down to part-time so they don't have to pay the $15 an hour. And if any business does pay the $15 an hour, their cost of employees is going to increase 48% across the board, not just in salaries, but in FICA, in benefits, and everything else that goes with that paycheck. 
you know, it's not just $15 an hour coming out of the uh, employer's pocket. It's everything else that's attached to it. Uh, it's the craziest thing that I have ever seen to increase by more than 50% someone's overnight the minimum wage. Uh, that's not good economic policy, especially in this time where we've already lost what we've got, what, 35 million people unemployed because of the pandemic. And it's just going to increase. It's, it's unemployment. a large number. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is no, a large in, in my article, in my, in my article about the barstool fund, we've, uh, we've seen that 60% of the small businesses that were forced to close due to COVID have shuttered permanently. So that means that, 60% of businesses that already were closing because of issues to, uh, due to COVID are not going to open back up again. And that's all across the country. So your small business that you might have been to for years might not come back. No, and unfortunately, the lot, or fortunately, the largest employer in the United States is small business. It's not the Wally World. It's not the Publix. It's not the Food Line. It's not your local Sears. It's the small business. And once that shutters towns are going to close down and and, and that's that's a, a very very sad thing and it's going to take us decades to climb back out of this it really will but anyway people can find you th through the heritage foundation you're at the daily signal um i wanted to mention one last thing uh you've got a new distinguished fellow that just joined the heritage uh vice president mike pence we do. Um, so, yeah, my, my, Vice President Mike Tense has joined the Heritage Foundation as a distinguished fellow. He will be writing, hopefully in the near future, for uh, the Daily Signal as well. This is, um, we're very excited to have him on board. But if you would like to read some of Vice President Mike Tense's pieces in the future and some of my pieces and some of the pieces from uh, a lot of our wonderful experts on a wide variety of topics. You can read stuff on immigration. You can read things on education. You can read stuff on the current coronavirus pandemic. I would recommend that your listeners go to dailysignal.com. And then one more thing, if I can actually mention it, um, the Heritage okay. Foundation also sponsored something called the National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. And this is, we, we gathered experts from all across the country to basically think of ways that we can get out of this pandemic, right? We, we, can't, we, we cannot go with the status quo. The status quo is not working at the moment. So we basically gathered all these very intelligent people together, and they came up with some policy solutions that will really get us out of this. And you can go to National Coronavirus Recovery Commission. You search that on your Google bar, and it'll pop up. And I really highly recommend your listeners take a look at that. It's got solutions for every level of private business, public business, so all levels of government. It's, it's, it's a fantastic piece of work. It's, it's wonderful. Well, I've got to tell you, I've taken Google out of my search bar, and it's now DuckDuckGo, because you go to DuckDuckGo and you do a search, you're not tracked. <laughs> but Google will track There you go. <laughs> yeah, well, DuckDuckGo so I, I or get Google. your search bar of choice. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for joining us, and I welcome you back any time to the show. Uh, just tell Tom, hey, that crazy uh, Southern Sense lady, that chickadee, <laughs> get me back. Cause I would, I, you, I got would you. you got I trolled. <laughs> I got trolled. You got trolled. You got trolled. Yeah, I, I say it's, it's certainly an honor to be trolled because you know you're doing something right. <laughs> Correct? I will, I, will, I will take that as a positive, sure. Oh, all right. Thank you very much, Doug. You have a blessed weekend. Take care. You too. Thank you so check much. Out, uh, check out Doug Blair over at uh, the Daily Signal. Also check out the Heritage Foundation at heritage.org. Curtis, we're down to our last few minutes, and I just wanted to mention uh, 
that email that I sent back to my friend, she was asking about the numbers, um, saying that there was a difference of only 56,000 between 2016 and 2019 in causes, mm-hmm. uh, 2020, I mean, in causes of death where, you know, COVID hit us at the end of 2019 uh-huh. and all through 2020. And I said, I did a cursory quick search that seemed to have a grain of truth in what was written. And I gave her a link to an NBC affiliate using the stats from John Hopkins University. And I said, it seems spot on as I checked it against the stats on the CDC website leading up to the 2019, the last stats that CDC has. And I said, in my research, COVID is not the number one cause of death. And as you saw, Curtis, in your research, it's down below number 10. Many yeah. hospitals will list COVID-19 as cause when, in truth, the individual will have died from cancer, heart disease, stroke, pneumonia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. While COVID-19 may have sped up the process, it was not the actual cause. And the reason why hospitals are using this numbers trick is for every COVID death, they get upwards to $35, $35,000 per body from the federal government. Many hospitals are losing money and some are going broke because of the pandemic with elective and non-critical procedures and testings canceled or postponed. They needed alternative revenue avenues. And voila, in steps Uncle Sam with an open taxpayer-funded So that's all we got for today. You get a toe ache and it's COVID all of a sudden. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, we will not be live next week. Uh, my husband is going in for some major surgery, and uh, he will be going in on Friday, and I will be pacing the floor and letting my hair go grayer and grayer and grayer while he's under the knife. So I will not be here. Uh, you will be traveling up to see your mom. So we yeah, a pre-recorded show in its place. So we will be back live in two weeks. Also, we're starting to work on a project where we're going to really up our game and change the way we are broadcasting the show, the look of it. It's going to be all new, sleek, and fine-tuned, and I think you're really going to like what we come up with. So that's all we got for today, Curtis. So I think uh, we'll close off with little Gary Pecorella and his song, Save America. So until then, I say, Curtis, good night and God bless. Good night. Stay warm.